The Outset of Dissension in Islam Written by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad Raziallahu Anhu Read by Waqas Khurshid Forward We are pleased to publish the English translation of a lecture delivered in Urdu by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad Raziallahu Anhu second successor of the promised Messiah alayhi salam entitled Islam e Ikhtilafat ka Aghaz The Outset of Dissension in Islam The lecture was delivered at the Islamia College Lahore on 26 February 1919. The primary purpose of this lecture was to provide a correct and accurate historical account of the conflicts which arose most prominently during the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu. The lecture is an academic masterpiece of scholarship and explains the events of the era of the Third Khilafat in a manner that no other historian has been able to match, be it Muslim or non-Muslim. It is an extremely significant lecture because it deals with a very important era in the history of Islam. Furthermore, the narrations which detail the actual historical account of that era are hidden from the eyes of most people. Some historians have claimed that the conflicts arose due to the incapability of Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu, while others assert that this was the doing of various companions of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam due to their greed for power and political control. The lecture, however, refutes both of these two notions with ample proof and categorically establishes that conflicts arose due to the conspiracies of the enemies of Islam. In this lecture, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad radhiyallahu anhu has shed light on the life of Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu, his piety and righteousness, and his status in the eyes of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Moreover, he has expounded upon the virtues of the companions of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. and has explained how these conflicts actually arose and the causes behind them furthermore contrary to the belief of some historians he has also explained that the companions of the holy prophet did not dislike the leadership of hazrat usman radhiyallahu anhu rather they all loved him dearly and demonstrated an unparalleled degree of loyalty until his last breath bismillahir rahmanir rahim نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم in the name of allah the gracious the merciful we praise allah and invoke blessings upon his noble messenger a lecture delivered by hazrat mirza bashiruddin mahmood ahmad khalifatul masjid second radhiyallahu anhu head of the worldwide ahmadiyya muslim jamaat from 1914 to 1965 delivered on 26 february 1919 in a gathering at the Martin Historical Society Islamia College Lahore Pakistan necessity of being familiar with islamic history a short while ago i received the news with great pleasure that a society has been established in the lahore islamia college in which those who are acquainted with historical facts will present their research i was overjoyed by this as familiarization with history acts as a great stimulant in the progress of nations A nation that is unacquainted with its historical accounts can never advance towards progress. Knowledge of the circumstances of one's forefathers guides a person to many higher objectives. Thus, when I came to know of the establishment of this society, I was pleased by the thought that lectures on Islamic history would be delivered alongside other lectures on various historical topics. These lectures would enable college students to understand the kinds of challenging tasks their forefathers were confronted with and the exceptional ability and perseverance with which they carried them out. 
they will come to know of the ancestors they have descended from and the obligations that fall upon them in their capacity as their children and representatives. They will aspire to be like their forefathers upon witnessing their magnificent deeds and their lofty splendor. Truly, I am overjoyed by the establishment of this society. Now that I have been asked to deliver a lecture on this forum regarding an aspect of Islamic history, I most delightedly postponed my departure and accepted to present my research before you on this occasion with respect to certain subjects of historical importance. Importance of the Subject I was asked to speak on a few historical issues concerning Islam. Undoubtedly, the most significant era in Islamic history is that in which the Holy Prophet ﷺ, under the command of God the Exalted, presented the religion of Islam to the world. He imprinted its reflection upon the hearts of hundreds of thousands of men through 23 years of arduous labor and created a community of thousands of men whose thoughts, speech, and actions became an embodiment of Islam itself. However, the foundation for dissension in Islam was laid 15 years after the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. After this time, the cracks of schism between the Muslims continue to widen. The history of this very era is concealed in heavy veils of darkness. According to the opponents of Islam, this is a hideous blemish upon Islam, and even to its friends, serves as a perplexing question. Only a few have sought to cross the swamp of the history of that era safe and sound, and who are able to succeed in their objective. It is for this reason that I have decided to speak to you on this very topic. Magnificent Past of Islam As you may be aware, the task which has been assigned to me by God the Exalted i.e. to train the Ahmadiyya community, manage its needs, and plan for its progress, in its nature encompasses many aspects. Hence, for the purpose of its administration, it is absolutely imperative for me to possess knowledge of the historical subjects which specifically relate to the era of Khilafat. For this reason, despite having little time to spare, I am compelled to keep the history of that era under study. Although our primary task is to investigate and deeply contemplate upon religion, but along with this study, by the grace of God, such hidden aspects of the history of early Islam have been disclosed to me, which most people of the current age are unaware of. Due to this unfamiliarity, some Muslims are even becoming averse to their own religion. They see their past as being so dreadful that in its presence they cannot hope for a glorious future. However, their despair is ill-founded and such views are false, and are merely due to a lack of knowledge in true Islamic history. For Islam's past is so magnificent and spotless, and all those trained in the company of the Holy Prophet ﷺ were people of such high moral excellence that their likes cannot be found in any nation of the world. Even if such people had lived in the company of a Prophet, it is only those who enjoyed the company of the Holy Prophet ﷺ about whom it can be said that by following the footsteps of their teacher and master, they developed such spirituality that despite susceptible to the dangerous maze of politics, they did not let virtue and honesty slip their hands. Even under the burden of holding positions in sovereignty, their backs remained as firm as they were at the time when they once required the basic means of sustenance, and their floor was the bare earth of Masjid al-Navi, the Prophet's mosque. Their own hands served as pillows, their occupation was listening to the blessed words of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, and their leisure was the worship of the one God. First Devotees of Islam Hazrat Usman Razi Anhu and Hazrat Ali Razi Anhu 
You have probably gathered that on this occasion I intend to speak about the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman anhu and Hazrat Ali anhu. Both of these noble men are among the first devotees of Islam. Their companions are also from among the best fruits of Islam. For a charge to be leveled against their honesty and virtue is in reality a disgrace upon Islam. Any Muslim who sincerely ponders over this fact will definitely reach the conclusion that in actuality, these people are above and beyond all kinds of partiality. This statement is not without foundation. Rather, the pages of history are a testimony to this very fact for anyone who examines them with open eyes. False Narrations of Non-Muslim Historians As far as my research is concerned, whatever is alleged against these noble men and their friends is the work of the opponents of Islam. After the era of the Companions, Various so-called Muslims driven by their egos have leveled allegations upon either one or the other from among these noble men. However, despite this, the truth has always prevailed and has never remained veiled in secrecy. Of course, in this era, when Muslims became unfamiliar with their own history and religion, the opponents of Islam either singled out narrations of the enemies of Islam from the history of Islam or derived false conclusions from true events and crafted such works of history that would bring blame upon the companions and through them upon Islam. At this time, since these non-Muslim historians are becoming the eyes through which Muslims behold everything, for this reason, Muslims have accepted everything they assert. Fearing the higher criticism of Europe, even those who have had the opportunity to study original Arabic works of history for themselves, have considered the false and fabricated narrations upon which European writers base their research as being authentic and superior, and declared other narrations as being inaccurate. In this manner, the current age has become almost devoid of such people who have endeavored to analyze events in their original form. Companions were not the real cause of the disorders in Islam. Remember well that the notion of certain eminent companions being responsible for the disorders in Islam is absolutely false. After a collective study of the accounts of these people, it cannot even be imagined that they attempted to destroy and ruin Islam for their personal interests or benefit. Those who have embarked to find causes for the emergence of dissension and discord in Islam within the community of the companions have faltered gravely. The causes of disorder arose from other quarters, and the only hope for reaching an accurate conclusion is if they are investigated in these quarters. If the false narrations which have been spread in relation to that era are accepted as being true, not a single companion can be absolved from having taken part in this disorder, and not a single one appears to have stood firmly upon virtue and honesty. This is such an attack upon the truth of Islam, that both foundation and basis are uprooted. Hazrat Masih the Messiah, states that a tree is recognized by its fruit, and due to these narrations, the fruits of the tree of Islam prove to be so bitter that no one would even be prepared to take them for free, let alone at an expense. However, would anyone who has studied the spiritual power of the Holy Prophet wasallam to even the slightest degree be ready to accept such a notion? Of course not. It is far from reason to presume that such people who lived in the company of the Holy Prophet were his eminent and devoted companions, were his very near relatives of the Holy Prophet and all of the other companions without exception, deviated to such an extent in merely a few years that all of them fell into conflict due to personal interests, not due to religious reasons, and this misfortune shook the very core of Islam. 
It is unfortunate that although Muslims do not explicitly state that the companions created disorder in order to destroy and ruin Islam, but they have accepted the narrations of such people as being true, who had not fully accepted Islam and had only made a verbal declaration of faith. Then, they have relied on the research of bitter enemies of Islam who were in pursuit of its destruction. Ultimately, therefore, such people concede that the community of the companions was, God forbid, completely devoid of virtue and honesty. In my exposition, I shall bear in mind not to mention dates so that it is not difficult to understand and the subject does not become confusing. The real objective of this lecture is to familiarize college students with certain events of early Islam. For this reason, I shall also abstain from quoting Arabic quotation insofar as possible and shall describe events in the form of a narrative. Why dissension emerged in the era of the third Khalifa All educated Muslims are probably aware that signs of dissension amongst the Muslims began to prominently emerge in the era of the third Khalifa. Prior to him, in the era of Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu and Hazrat Umar anhu, discord never took on a serious nature. The Muslims were so united that both friend and foe believed that it was impossible to divide them. It is for this reason that people generally attribute the discord under discussion to the weakness of the third Khalifa. However, as I shall explain ahead, this is not the case. An Introduction to Hazrat Usman anhu. After Hazrat Umar anhu, the gaze of all the companions fell upon Hazrat Usman anhu for the office of Khilafat, and thus he was appointed for this task through the consultation of the eminent companions. He was the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet and two daughters of the Holy Prophet were wedded to him one after another. When the second daughter of the Holy Prophet passed away, the Holy Prophet said, If I had another daughter, I would marry her to Hazrat Usman as well. This shows that he held a special rank of honor in the sight of the Holy Prophet He held a very unique position in the sight of the people of Makkah and was a wealthy man according to the circumstances of Arabia at that time. After Hazrat Abu Bakr accepted Islam, one of the people to whom he particularly chose to preach the message of Islam was Hazrat Usman. The view of Hazrat Abu Bakr with respect to Hazrat Usman did not prove false and only after a few days of preaching he accepted Islam. In this manner, he joined the Asabikun al-Awwalun, or that pioneer group of Islam, which the Holy Qur'an has praised in admirable words. The degree of honor and respect that he possessed in Arabia can be understood from the incident that when the Holy Prophet ﷺ journeyed to Makkah on the basis of a vision, and the Makkans, blinded by their malice and enmity, refused to grant him permission to perform the Umrah, the Holy Prophet ﷺ proposed that an esteemed person should be sent to the Makkans to negotiate the matter. When Hazrat Umar was selected for this, he replied, O Messenger of Allah, I am prepared to go, but if there is anyone in Makkah who can negotiate with the Makkans, then it is Hazrat Usman because he holds special regard in their eyes. Hence, if someone else were to go, there cannot be as much hope for success in him as opposed to if Hazrat Usman went. The Holy Prophet also considered this view as being correct and consequently sent Hazrat Usman for the task. It can be understood from this incident that Hazrat Usman was looked upon with special honor even by the disbelievers. Status of Hazrat Usman in the eyes of the Holy Prophet 
The Holy Prophet ﷺ held a great deal of respect for Hazrat Usman anhu. On one occasion, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was lying down when Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu arrived, but the Holy Prophet ﷺ remained lying. After some time, Hazrat Umar anhu arrived, but again he remained lying. When Hazrat Usman anhu arrived, he instantly adjusted his clothes and said, there is a great deal of modesty in the disposition of Hazrat Usman anhu, and it is in considering of his feeling that I have done this. He was one of those rare men who had never consumed alcohol and had never approached adultery even prior to accepting Islam. In the country of Arabia, where drinking alcohol was thought to be a source of pride and adultery a daily indulgence, these were qualities which could not be found in more than a handful of people before Islam. Therefore, Hazrat Usman anhu was no ordinary man. He possessed very high moral qualities. With respect to worldly rank, he was exceptional. He was the foremost in Islam. The Holy Prophet was very pleased with him. Hazrat Umar anhu has declared him as being among the six men who, up until the demise of the Holy Prophet held his utmost pleasure. Furthermore, he was from the Ashram Mubashara. Footnote In actuality, Ashram Mubashara has become a renowned term. Otherwise, there were many more companions about whom the Holy Prophet ﷺ had prophesied that they would enter paradise. The term Ashram Mubashara refers to those ten muhajireen who were a part of the Majlis Ashura, consultative body of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, and whom he especially trusted. End footnote. Meaning he was one of those ten men about whom the Holy Prophet ﷺ had given the glad tiding that they would enter paradise. For about six years after he took up the office of Khilafat, no disorder of any kind arose. In fact, people were generally very pleased with him. After this, conflict suddenly arose which steadily grew so large that it could not be stopped by the efforts of any individual. Ultimately, this proved to be extremely injurious for Islam. Thirteen hundred years have passed, but its effect upon the Muslim Ummah have not died away to this day. What gave rise to the conflict? Now the question is, how did this conflict come about? Some have alleged the cause to be Hazrat Usman anhu, while others, Hazrat Ali anhu. Some say that Hazrat Usman anhu introduced certain innovations in the faith which caused an uproar among the Muslims. Others assert that Hazrat Ali anhu secretly conspired to acquire Khilafat and had Hazrat Usman anhu killed by creating hostility against him so that he could become the Khalifa himself. However, both of these notions are false. Neither did Hazrat Usman anhu introduce innovations in the faith, nor did Hazrat Ali anhu have him killed or took part in a conspiracy to murder him in order to become the Khalifa himself. In fact, there were other causes for this revolt. Hazrat Usman anhu and Hazrat Ali anhu are completely free from the blemish of such allegations. Both were very holy men. Hazrat Usman anhu was the person about whom the Holy Prophet ﷺ had said that he had served Islam to such a great extent that now he could do whatsoever he wished, God would not question him. This does not imply that he would not be held accountable even if he renounced Islam. In fact, it inferred that he had acquired so many qualities and had progressed so much in virtue that it was no longer possible for any of his actions to be in violation of the commandments of Allah the Exalted. As such, Hazrat Usman anhu was not a man who would issue an order in violation to the Sharia, nor was Hazrat Ali anhu 
a man who would secretly conspire to assume Khilafat. As far as I have contemplated and studied, there are four reasons for this horrific uprising. Four reasons for conflict. Firstly, the nature of men is generally inclined towards the acquisition of wealth and stature with the exception of those whose hearts God the Exalted has particularly cleansed. Certain people who were not complete in their faith became envious upon witnessing the honor, status, success, and authority of the companions. As has been a practice since time immemorial, they began to desire that these companions resign from all the responsibilities of government and hand over positions to them, so that others are given the opportunity to exhibit their skill as well. They also disliked that the companions not only held state authority, but also received a special share of the riches. Hence, these people continued to burn inside with jealousy. They awaited a revolution by which the government would crumble and fall into their hands, so that they would also demonstrate their talent and skill and gain worldly wealth and stature. In worldly states, such ideas may be forgiven to some extent, and can even be considered rational at times. This is because, firstly, the foundation of worldly states is purely based on apparent means, and a significant cause in the progress of apparent means is the introduction of new ideas and spirit into the governmental framework as well. This is only possible if old workers vacate their posts freely, leaving space for others. Secondly, since a worldly state receives authority and representation of the public, it is compelled to respect the public opinion. It is also essential for those voicing the public view to possess substantial involvement in the organization of the works of the state. However, in a religious movement, the matter is quite the opposite, where the overriding principle of all principles is to abide by a set law. Furthermore, the interference of one's personal ideas is strictly prohibited, except with relation to such derivative institutes of the law, where the sharia has remained silent. Secondly, religious movements are afforded authority from God the Exalted, and it is the duty of people who control the reins of administration to prevent people from moving out of line in religious matters. Instead of voicing the opinions of people, it is incumbent upon them to shape the views of people into the mold that has been designed by God the Exalted, according to the needs of that time. The Islamic Khilafat was a religious administration. Therefore, due to not understanding the reality of Islam, such objections would arise in the hearts of those people. They failed to understand that the Islamic Khilafat was no worldly government, nor were the companions ordinary chiefs of state. On the contrary, the Islamic Khilafat was a religious administration which was established in accordance with the special injunctions of the Holy Quran, contained in Surah An-Nur. The companions were those pillars of religion whom God the Exalted had made obligatory to follow in order to advance in spiritual ranks. The companions left their jobs and adopted every type of poverty and destitution. They placed their lives in danger, left the company and love of those close relatives and dear ones, said farewell to their homelands, and sacrificed their sentiments and emotions, and adopted the company and love of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Some of them had learnt Islam lesson by lesson, spending approximately a quarter of a century as students of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Moreover, they strengthened the practical aspect of Islam by acting upon it. They understood the meaning of Islam, its purpose, its reality, and how one should act upon its teachings. Additionally, they understood the benefits that could be attained by acting upon it. Hence, they were not kings and members of a worldly government. Rather, they were teachers of the very last religion and law of the seal of Prophet It was made incumbent upon them 
to represent Islam through their actions, speech, and conduct, and to imprint its teaching upon the hearts of people, and to make them practicing followers. They were not supporters of tyranny. Rather, they were supporters of the lustrous law. They abhorred materialism. If it were up to them, they would have abandoned the world and sat in place of seclusion and eased their hearts with the remembrance of God. However, they were compelled by the responsibility which had been laid upon their shoulders by God and His Messenger wasallam. Footnote Later events of Islamic history evidently prove how beneficial and blessed the intervention of the companions truly was. By removing their intervention for a period in time, God the Exalted demonstrated the detrimental results of moving them aside. The manner in which Islam became the target of mockery at the hands of so-called Muslims is such that when a person reads these accounts, the heart trembles and the body shivers. End footnote. Therefore, whatever they did was not on account of their own desires. Rather, it was in accordance with the command of God the Exalted as per the guidance of His Messenger wasallam. Hence, it was a terrible mistake to be jealous and think ill of them. Now remains the objection that the companions were given some special sums of wealth. This was also a form of mischief, because whatever the companions received was in accordance to their rights. They did not usurp the rights of others in order to accumulate their own wealth. In fact, every single individual, even if he had become Muslim one day before, received his right in the same way as pioneer believers. Of course, the efforts of the companions and their labor and sacrifice exceeded that of others. Moreover, their age-old services were in addition to all this. Hence, they deserved a greater right over others out of justice, not injustice. For this reason, they received greater remuneration in comparison to others. They had not fixed their own shares themselves. On the contrary, Allah and His Messenger had fixed their shares. If these people had not been treated in a special manner, how would the prophecies contained in the Holy Quran and Ahadith of the Holy Prophet ﷺ regarding their success, prosperity, comfort and wealth have been fulfilled? If, after the fall of Caesar's kingdom and victory over his treasury, Hazrat Umar anhu had not given Caesar's bangles to Suraka bin Malik anhu, how then would the prophecy of the Holy Prophet ﷺ be fulfilled, in which he said, I see the bangles of Caesar in the hands of Suraka? I would also add, however, that whatever the companions received was not by usurping the rights of others. In fact, anyone who carried out even a small task in the government was given his right. The Khulafa were very cautious in this regard. The companions were merely given their fair share, though undoubtedly it was greater than that of others, due to their work and former services. Then, a group of them also took part in the wars that arose at the time, and in exchange of this service, they were just as deserving of a reward as were others. However, it should also be remembered that history proves that the companions did not have the habit of saving this money or spending it on their own souls. They only accepted their share in order to prove the truth of the words of Allah and His Messenger. Each and every one of them was an unparalleled model of generosity and munificence. Their wealth was spent solely for the welfare and guardianship of the poor. Thinking ill of the companions is without reason. Therefore, the jealousy and ill will which had taken root in some people with respect to the companions was without reason and cause. However, this seed had been sown irrespective of whether this was with or without reason. A segment of people who were unfamiliar with the reality of religion began to look upon them as if they were usurpers. They anxiously waited for an opportunity to push them aside so that they could assume control of the government and its wealth. 
The second reason for this disorder was that Islam had established such means of freedom of conscience and action and equality between people as were not even available to great philosophical thinkers before this. As is the rule, there are some who innately possess an element of disease and thus suffer instead of benefiting from even the best nourishments. Similarly, instead of benefiting from this principle of freedom of conscience and action, some people suffered by it and were unable to remain within its boundaries. This disease began in the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ when a wretched so-called Muslim confronted him and uttered the words, O Messenger of Allah, keep in mind the fear of Allah, for you have not acted with justice in the distribution of riches. To this, the Holy Prophet ﷺ replied, إِنَّهُ يَخْرُجُ مِنْ دِئْذِهِ هَذَا قَوْمٌ يَتْلُونَ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ رَتْبًا لَا يُجَاوِزُ حَنَاجِرَهُمْ يَمْرُقُونَ مِنَ الدِّينِ كَمَا يَمْرُقُ السُّحْمُ مِنَ الرَّمِيَةِ A nation will arise from this person's progeny that will recite the Qur'an often, but it will not descend their throats. They will stray from faith just as an arrow misses its target. The latent fire of such thoughts flared up a second time in the era of Hazrat Umar once a person stood up in the midst of a gathering and leveled an allegation against Hazrat Umar who was a selfless person and the guardian khalifa of the finances of the community of Prophet Muhammad saying, From where have you acquired this cloak? Nevertheless, on both these occasions disorder did not take on a frightening shape because, until then, neither was there any prepared ground for its growth and development nor did a favorable climate exist. However, in the time of Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, both these factors came to exist, and this plant, which I shall call the plant of disorder, strengthened on very firm foundations. In the time of Hazrat Ali, عنه, it grew and developed to such an extent that its branches well nigh extended to cover all the corners of the Muslim world under their shade. However, Hazrat Ali عنه, recognized the harms of this plant in good time and cut it to the ground with a fatal blow though he would not manage to completely wipe it out, but at least he was able to restrict its area of influence to a great extent. In my opinion, the third cause was that although a large number of people had brought about a grand transformation in their lives due to the effect of the luminous rays of Islam, but this could in no way fulfill the shortcoming which always makes an individual require a teacher for the acquisition of religious and worldly knowledge. Even in the era of the Holy Prophet when people accepted Islam in troops, the very same danger existed and began to emerge. However, God had promised him that in this era of progress, those who would accept Islam would be safeguarded from evil influence. After his demise, although a violent wave of apostasy surged forth, it was instantly contained and people learnt the reality of Islam. However, after the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, when the conquests of Persia, Syria and Egypt took place, the spiritual victories which Islam achieved due to its interaction with other religions became the very cause for the disturbance of its political order. Millions of people entered Islam and upon witnessing its magnificent teaching became so devoted to it that they became prepared to offer their lives. However, the number of new converts to Islam multiplied so rapidly that no satisfactory arrangement could be made for their education. As is the rule, and from an in-depth study of the human mind, it can be concluded that due to their initial enthusiasm, the need for their education and training was not felt. They imitated the Muslims completely and followed every instruction with pleasure. However, 
As this initial fervence began to subside, those who had not received the opportunity to undergo spiritual training began to feel as if adherence to Islamic injunctions was a burden. As soon as this new enthusiasm died down, their old habits began to re-emerge. Anyone can commit mistakes, and man learns through experience. However, if these people had truly desired to gain something, then after having stumbled for a while, they would have eventually learned. In the era of the Holy Prophet wasallam, conditions were such that once a person committed a crime, and he himself confessed to his crime, and did not fear being stoned, even after the Holy Prophet wasallam pointed out that when Allah the Exalted covers up a sin, then why should one disgrace himself? In contrast, now, if even the smallest punishment was imposed in order to maintain the boundaries of the Sharia, these people dislike this. Hence, there were some people who would not refrain from violating the Sharia because Islam had not penetrated their hearts. Moreover, when the Sharia would be upheld, these very people would be infuriated and raise objections against the Khalifa and his officials. In addition, they would harbor malice in their hearts against them and plot to uproot their administration altogether. The fourth cause for conflict, in my view, was that Islam progressed at such an extraordinary pace that in the beginning, its opponents were unable to perceive this. The Makkans were still living under a false sense of pride over their might and thought that the Holy Prophet ﷺ was weak when Makkah was conquered and Islam spread throughout the Arab Peninsula. The Caesar of Rome and Khosrow of Persia viewed this growing power of Islam with such contempt in the likeness of a spectator just as a tyrant wrestler looks upon the first attempt of a child to stand up. The Persian and Byzantine empires were shattered into pieces with a single blow from the strike of the Prophet Muhammad So long as the Muslims were engaged in confronting these tyrant governments that had forced people into slavery for over hundreds, if not thousands of years, and their humble and ill-equipped army was at war with the massive and well-equipped armies of their enemies. The opponents of Islam thought that the Muslim victories were temporary and soon this wave would take another turn, and this nation, rising in the likeness of a storm, would soon fly away like a tornado. However, their astonishment knew no bounds when in a period of a few years the horizon was cleared and the banner of Islam began to flutter in all four corners of the world. This was such a triumph which left the enemy dumbfounded and it drowned in a sea of surprise and astonishment. In the eyes of enemy forces, the companions as well as those who gained their company began to appear as supernatural beings. The enemy lost all hope. However, when a period of time elapsed after these victories, and their awe and astonishment lessened, and their fear lessened after meeting their companions, عنهم, the thought of opposing Islam and establishing false religions developed. As far as argumentation was concerned, they could not contest with the pure teachings of Islam. Governments had been wiped out, and the one tool that was always used against the truth, i.e. oppression and tyranny, had been destroyed. Now only one avenue remained, which was to do the work of an enemy in the guise of a friend, and through agreement create divide. Hence, various evil people who were becoming blinded by the light of Islam accepted the religion outwardly, but actually sought to destroy it after apparently converting to Islam. Since the progress of Islam was associated with Khilafat, in the presence of a shepherd, the wolf was unable to attack. Therefore, it was proposed that Khilafat be wiped out and the thread of harmony which tied the Muslims of the entire world together be torn, so that the Muslims could be deprived of the blessings of unity. 
In this manner, false religions could once again find an avenue of progress by taking advantage of the absence of a leader, and no danger would exist for their deceit and deception to be revealed. In my opinion, these are the four cases which gave rise to the grand rebellion that shook the very foundation of the Muslim Ummah in the era of Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him. There were times when the enemy was overjoyed by the thought that now, this magnificent fortress would crumble to the ground, along with its roofs and walls. This religion had foretold that it would achieve the following magnificent future. He it is who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth, so that he may cause it to prevail over all other religions. The enemy believed that this religion would now be eradicated once and for all. Why did conflict arise in the era of Hazrat Usman? In light of the historical events which transpired in the last days of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman, I have deduced the actual causes of this conflict and presented them before you. You shall understand for yourself as to whether they are correct or incorrect once you become aware of the events from which I have drawn this conclusion. However, before I allude to these events, I wish to say something with regards to the question of why unrest arose in the time of Hazrat Usman. The fact of the matter is that in the time of Hazrat Usman, people entered Islam in large numbers. The vast majority of these new Muslims were unfamiliar with the Arabic language. Thus, learning the Islamic faith was not as easy for them as it was for the Arabs. For centuries, Due to their interaction with the Persians and Syrians, even those who knew Arabic had remained victim to the filthy views which were a natural result of the civilization of that era. In addition to this, due to battles with the Persians and Christians, the full strength of most companions and those who followed him were being exhausted and warding off the onslaughts of the enemy. Two major causes for why new Muslims were unable to become as familiar with Islam as was required were that on one hand, Muslim attention was occupied by external enemies, and on the other hand, new Muslims were unfamiliar with the Arabic language or had been influenced by non-Arab views. In the era of Hazrat Umar, since the Muslims were engaged in a large-scale series of wars and the danger of the enemy remained ever-present, people did not receive an opportunity to contemplate other matters. Additionally, due to being in constant battle with the enemy, naturally, religious passion would rise up again and again, and this covered up the weakness in religious knowledge which existed among the people. The same conditions were prevalent even in the early era of Hazrat Usman. On one hand, wars ensued, while earlier influences also remained in the hearts of people. When a state of peace prevailed to some extent, and initial enthusiasm also subsided, it was then that this religious weakness began to show its colors. The enemies of Islam capitalized on this opportunity and mobilized in order to create mischief. Hence, this disorder was not the result of any action of Hazrat Usman. As a matter of fact, had these conditions developed in the time of any Khalifa, disorder would have emerged. The only fault of Hazrat Usman was that he was elected to the office of Khilafat at a time when his involvement in creating disorder was no greater than that of Hazrat Abu Bakr or Hazrat Umar and who can say that this conflict was a result of a weakness on the part of these two holy men? It has not ceased to amaze me as to how certain people assert that these disorders were the result of a weakness of Hazrat Usman. Hazrat Umar 
who could not have even imagined that Hazrat Usman would become Khalifa, had already identified the root cause of this conflict in the era of his own Khilafat. He then warned the Quraysh in this regard with strong words. As such, it is written that Hazrat Umar would not allow the senior companions to go forth for war, and if they sought his permission, he would say, Is the jihad which you performed alongside the Holy Prophet not enough? Footnote Hazrat Umar had two reasons in this view. Firstly, this meant that a community of teachers always remained in Medina. Secondly, the companions received special shares from Baytul Mal, the national treasury, due to their being the foremost in belief and offering services in the era of the Holy Prophet Thus, Hazrat Umar thought that if these people had also taken part in expeditions, they would have received even more shares and this would become difficult for others to bear. End footnote. Once, when the companions finally complained, he said, I have grazed Islam just as a camel is grazed. First a camel is born, then it becomes a calf. Then it grows two teeth, then four teeth, and then six. Then it grows canine teeth. Now, what can be expected for one whose canine teeth have grown except for weakness? Listen, Islam has now reached its perfection. The Quraysh desire that they should take all the wealth for themselves, while others are deprived. Footnote. In other words, if the companions took a share for being pioneers and then also for now taking part in jihad, others would receive less. End footnote. Hearken, until Umar bin al-Khattab is alive, he shall hold the Quraysh by their necks so that they do not fall into the fire of disorder. It appears from the statement of Hazrat Umar that even in his own era, he noticed the views billowing in the minds of people that the companions received a greater share. For this reason, except for a few companions, without whom the armies could not be managed, he would not allow the companions to go forth for jihad, so that people would not be put to trial due to the companions receiving a double share. Moreover, he felt that Islam had now reached the pinnacle of success, and after this, only the danger of its decline remained, not a hope of further progress. After having mentioned this much, I shall now relate the sequence of events which shed light on the reality of the conflicts that arose in the time of Hazrat Usman. I have already mentioned that in the beginning of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman, we see no sign of disorder for up to six years. Quite the contrary, it appears that people were generally pleased with him. In fact, it is ascertained from history that in this era he was even dearer to the people than Hazrat Umar. Not only was he dear to the people, in fact, they were in awe of him. A poet of that era testifies to this fact in his poetic verses in the following words O rebellious people, do not loot and devour the people's wealth in the reign of Usman, for Ibn Affan is he whom you have experienced. In accordance with Quranic injunctions, he executes those who pillage. He has always been a guardian of the injunctions of this holy Qur'an. He is the one who teaches the people to act upon these injunctions. However, after six years, we see a campaign in the seventh year, and this was not directed against Hazrat Usman Rather, it was directed against the companions or against various governors. As such, Tabari narrates that Hazrat Usman took full consideration of the rights of people. However, those people who did not enjoy the distinction of being the foremost pioneers in Islam 
did not receive the same level of honor as the early and pioneer Muslims did in gatherings, nor did they receive an equal share in rule and wealth. Over time, some people began to criticize the superiority and deemed it to be an injustice. However, these people feared the Muslim masses, and out of their fear that the people would oppose them, they would not express their views. Instead, the practice which they had employed was to secretly incite people against the companions. When they came across an uneducated Muslim or a freed Bedouin slave, they would open up their book of complaints. Consequently, either out of ignorance or due to their own desire for position, certain people would join them. Gradually, this group began to multiply and reached a large number. When disorder is about to arise, its contributing factors also begin to accumulate in an extraordinary manner. On one hand, those of a jealous disposition were beginning to grow incensed against the companions. On the other hand, the zeal for Islam which is usually present in the hearts of all those who convert from other religions began to decline amongst these new Muslims, who had neither lived in the company of the Holy Prophet nor had they received an opportunity to spend a great deal of time with those who had been in his company. As a matter of fact, as soon as they accepted Islam, it was their presumption that they had learned everything. As soon as this Islamic fervor lessened, the control which Islam possessed over their hearts also began to fall weak. They, once again, began to enjoy committing the sins that they had once indulged in before they became Muslims. When they were punished for their crimes, instead of reforming themselves, they became bent upon the destruction of those who were administrating these sentences. Ultimately, they proved to become the cause of creating a great rift in the unity enjoyed by Islam. The center of these people was in Kufa. However, the strangest thing to note is that an incident took place in Medina itself, which demonstrates that in that time, some people were as unfamiliar with Islam as the ignorant people of today who live in the remotest areas. Himran bin Abban was a person who married a woman during her iddat, meaning a fixed time period specified by the Islamic Sharia, which must elapse before a widow or divorced lady is permitted to marry again. When Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, learned of this, he was displeased at him. Not only did he order a separation, but also exiled him from Medina to Basra. This occurrence demonstrates how certain people began to perceive that the mere acceptance of Islam authorized them as being scholars of Islam. They did not feel a need for further research. Perhaps due to an influence of various views related to believing in unlawful things as being permissible, they deemed it a futile act to follow the Sharia. This is a sole event, and perhaps in Medina, which was the center of Islam, there was no one else who was as ignorant as he. However, in other cities, there were some who continued to advance in sins. Hence, it is ascertained from the circumstances of Kufa that a band of youths had taken root for the purpose of robbery. It is written that once they proposed robbing the house of a person named Ali bin Haysuman al-Khuzai, they broke into his house at night, but he learned of this and came out with a sword. However, when he saw a large party, he raised a hue and cry. At this, the group said, Quiet, or we shall wipe out your fear with a single blow. And they killed him. During this time, the neighbors had become alert. They gathered around and apprehended the robbers. A companion named Hazrat Abu Shuray, may Allah be pleased with him, who was a neighbor of this person and had witnessed the whole incident from over the wall of his house, testified that, in fact, these people had killed Ali. Similarly, his son also testified. The matter was submitted to Hazrat Usman anhu in writing and he sentenced all of them to death. Hence, 
Walid bin Utbah, who had been appointed as the governor of Kufa by Hazrat Usman anhu in those days, executed all these robbers in an open plain beyond the gate of the city. Apparently, this seems to be an insignificant event. But if one studies the conditions of that time, this was not a minor incident. With the progress of Islam, the rate of crime died out completely. People were at such peace that they did not fear sleeping with open doors. Hazrat Umar anhu had even stopped his governors from making security posts outside their offices. Although, the intention of Hazrat Umar anhu in this was to facilitate the people in submitting their complaints to governors with ease. This order could have only been carried out until an extreme level of peace prevailed. This incident was also especially worthy of note because the children of various powerful and influential people who possess control in their respective spheres were involved in this robbery. As such, this was not an ordinary crime. In fact, it was the foreshadowing of a great revolution. What else could this have been an indication towards other than the fact that the control of Islam upon the hearts of people who were unfamiliar with the religion of Islam was beginning to diminish? They were reverting to their old habits once again. Not only the poor, but even the rich were rising up to gain back their lost glory through murder and bloodshed. The companion, Hazrat Abu Shuraih, anhu, gathered this very well. He instantly sold his wealth, etc., and leaving Kufa, returned to Medina along with his family. His having left Kufa due to this event is sufficient evidence that this distinct account was an indication towards the dangerous events of the future. In these very days, another disorder began to emerge as well. Abdullah bin Sabah was a Jew, also known as Ibn Sauda on account of his mother. He was a resident of Yemen and was an extremely evil person. Upon witnessing the growing success of Islam, he became a Muslim with the objective of somehow creating rift among the Muslims. In my view, it is this very mischievous person around whom the disorders of this era revolve and who was in fact a driving force in this respect. It seems as if his inclination towards mischief was ingrained in his very nature. It was a habit for him to conspire secretly and he was highly skilled in identifying such people who could serve his motives. He would speak to everyone according to their dispositions and instigate vice in the veil of virtue. It is for this reason that even sincere people would fall victim to his deception. He became a Muslim in the first half of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman and toured all the Muslim states in order to personally gain insight as to the circumstances of each region. However, it was impossible for him to fulfill his ends in Medina Manavra, which literally translates to Medina the Enlightened. At the time, Makkah was completely disconnected from politics. Apart from the capital Basra, Kufa, Damascus, and Fustat were the political centers at the time. First, he visited these places. He adopted a practice whereby he searched for such people who had been punished and were therefore displeased with the state. He would visit them and stay at their residence. First, he went to Basra and stayed with Hakim bin Jabla, a robber who was under house arrest. He began to gather people of his own mentality and formed a party. As this was only the beginning of his mission, and he was also a clever man, therefore he would not speak openly. Rather, he would call people towards mischief through subtle indications. Moreover, as was his long-standing custom, he continued his practice of admonition and exhortation as well. As a result of this, people began to develop reverence in their hearts for him, and they began to accept his words. When Abdullah bin Amir, the governor of Basra, came to know of this, he asked him how he was doing and inquired as to why he had come. At this, he sent a reply saying, I am a person from the people of the book who has fallen in love with Islam and wishes to stay under your protection. 
Since Abdullah bin Amir had already discovered the true state of affairs, he did not accept this plea and said, The information I possess about your state of affairs is in contradiction to what you claim, so leave my city. Accordingly, he left Basra and traveled towards Kufa. However, before leaving, he managed to leave behind the seed of disorder and rebellion and aversion towards Islam. In my opinion, this was the very first political error that took place. Instead of exiling him, if the governor of Basra had imprisoned him and established a charge against him, perhaps this disorder may have remained there suppressed. The very intention behind Ibn Sauda leaving his home was to inflame a fire of disorder and sedition by touring the whole of the Islamic empire. His leaving Basra was precisely in accordance with his objective. Upon leaving Kufa, he began to repeat the schemes he had undertaken in Basra. Ultimately, he was exiled from here as well, but before moving on, he had managed to sow the seed of mischief here as well, which later grew into a very large tree. On this occasion, along with his exile, the political error that took place initially was committed once again. From Kufa he went to Syria, but was unable to find an opportunity to gain a foothold there. Here, Hazrat Muawiyah was managing the state of affairs with such excellence that neither was Ibn Sauda able to find such people amongst whom he could develop sway, nor could such people be found who could serve as his deputies. Hence, he was forced to move on from Syria with regret and despair. Thus, he turned towards Egypt, but prior to leaving Syria, he instigated another mischief. Abu Zarghafari was an extremely pious and righteous man from among the pioneer companions of the Holy Prophet From the moment that he accepted Islam, his steps only advanced forward in the love of the Holy Prophet He remained in the company of the Holy Prophet for a long period in time. Everyone possesses a unique disposition. Thus, upon hearing the admonition of the Holy Prophet that a believer should remain detached from the world according to his own disposition, he viewed the accumulation of wealth as being unlawful and abhorred riches. He would also admonish others not to accumulate wealth and to distribute whatever they possessed among the poor. He always held fast to this habit, even in the era of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, when the Muslims became affluent, he held the same view. When Ibn Sauda was passing through Syria, he noticed an extreme ebullience in his nature against wealth and his desire for the poor, as well as the rich, to distribute their wealth. Thus, upon traveling through Syria, he met with Hazrat Abu Zar anhu, who resided there at the time, and said to him, Look at the injustice. Muawiyah anhu refers to the riches of Baytul Mal, the national treasury of the Islamic State, as being the wealth of Allah. Although the funds of Baytul Mal are not the only wealth that belongs to Allah, everything belongs to Allah the Exalted. Then why does he declare these funds to be the wealth of Allah in particular? Only so that he may usurp the right that Muslims have over these funds, and after neglecting their share, so that he may devour this wealth himself. Hazrat Abu Zar was already actively engaged in exhorting that the affluent should distribute all their wealth among the poor, because a true abode of comfort for the believers is in the hereafter. He was absolutely unaware of the mischief and motive of this person. As a result, he fell victim to his deception and actually began to think, that it was wrong to refer to the funds of Baytul Mal as being the wealth of Allah, because there was a danger of the usurpation of wealth. In this manner, Ibn Sauda took revenge from Hazrat Muawiyah for not affording him an opportunity to develop a stronghold in Syria. Hazrat Abu Zar went to Muawiyah and admonished him, You refer to the wealth of Muslims as being the wealth of Allah. To this he replied, 
O Abu Zar, may Allah the Exalted have mercy on you. Are we not all the servants of Allah? Is this wealth not the wealth of Allah? Is all creation not the creation of Allah the Exalted? Is true authority not in the hands of God? In other words, when the servants belong to God and it is His authority which reigns supreme, then how could the rights of people be neglected by calling this wealth the wealth of Allah? The rights which God the Exalted has fixed shall be given to His creation according to His command. This reply was so profound that Hazrat Abu Zar was completely speechless. However, since he possessed special fervor in this regard, and Ibn Sauda had planted a doubt in his heart, out of caution, he advised Hazrat Mawiyah to refrain from using this term. Hazrat Mawiyah replied, I shall never say that these funds are not the wealth of Allah, but from now on, I shall refer to them as the wealth of the Muslims. When Ibn Sauda found this tactic to prove somewhat effective, he approached other companions and tried to provoke them. However, they were reclusive in nature, like Hazrat Abu Zar. They were aware of this person's mischief. As soon as Abu Darda heard his words, he said, Who are you to say such seditious things? By God, you are a Jew. Left disappointed by such, he approached the chief of the Ansar, Hazrat Ubadah bin Samit, an intimate companion of the Holy Prophet, and made certain mischievous statements. He apprehended him, took him to Hazrat Mawiyah and said, This is the man who sent Abu Zarghafari to you. When Ibn Sauda was confronted with failure in Syria, he left for Egypt, but his words ignited a new zeal in Hazrat Abu Zar. He began to admonish the Muslims with even greater passion than before, that all of them should distribute their wealth among the people. It was not correct for Hazrat Abu Zar to assert that no one should accumulate wealth. The reason being that the companions never hoarded wealth. Rather, they always distributed their wealth in the cause of Allah. Invariably, they were definitely affluent, but this does not constitute the hoarding of wealth. The hoarding of wealth is only an applicable term when a person does not support the poor and does not pay charity and alms. Even in the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, some of his companions were rich. If they had not been well off, how could Hazrat Usman have afforded to provide 10,000 soldiers provisions of travel at the time of the Ghazwa of Tabuk? The Holy Prophet ﷺ never reprimanded such people. In fact, some of them were very dear to the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Hence, being affluent was no crime. Instead, it was in distinct accordance with the prophecies of the Holy Qur'an, and Hazrat Abu Zar, may Allah be pleased with him, was mistaken in this regard. However, whatever the case may have been, Hazrat Abu Zar was adamant in respect of his own view. Nonetheless, it is also worthy of mention that although he would exhort people in light of his own view, he never took the law into his own hands. The commandments of the Holy Prophet ﷺ forever remained under his consideration. However, the people in whose company he would sit and express these views were unacquainted with his virtue and piety and took his statements in a different light. Finally, the end result of these views was that certain poor people began to extend oppressive hands towards the affluent in an attempt to take their own rights from them by force. The people complained to Hazrat Mawiyah who then submitted the matter before Hazrat Usman Hazrat Usman issued an order for Hazrat Abu Zar to be sent to Medina with honor and dignity. As per this instruction, Hazrat Abu Zar arrived in Medina. Hazrat Usman inquired from him, Why do the people of Syria complain against you? He replied, I defer with them because firstly the term wealth of Allah should not be used. Secondly, the affluent should not accumulate wealth. Hazrat Usman explained, Abu Zar, 
It is my duty and mine alone to fulfill the responsibility that Allah the Exalted has laid upon me. It is also my obligation to enforce the subjects to discharge their responsibilities, to encourage them to serve religion and to be moderate. However, it is not my task to compel them to abandon the world. Hazrat Abu Zar submitted, Then allow me to go somewhere else because Medina is no longer appropriate for me. Hazrat Usman responded, Will you abandon this abode and adopt one that is inferior to this? He replied, The Holy Prophet told me that when the population of Medina extends as far as Sal, do not stay in Medina. To this, Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, responded, Then carry out the instruction of the Holy Prophet. After giving him some camels and two slaves, Hazrat Usman bid him farewell, but stressed that he should not completely sever his ties with Medina and continue visiting every so often. Abu Zar always acted upon this guidance. This was the fourth conflict which arose. Although Hazrat Abu Zar was used as an instrument, the fact of the matter is that neither did he hold the same views as the rebels, nor was he aware of their mischief. Despite a difference of opinion, Hazrat Abu Zar never set out to take the law into his own hands. He continued to obey the government to such an extent that in consideration of his special circumstances, even though the Holy Prophet had instructed him to leave Medina at a certain time in order to save him from trial and suffering, he did not deem it appropriate to even act upon this command without first seeking permission from Hazrat Usman. Moreover, when he left Medina and settled in Razba, and the local tax collector asked him to become the imam in congregational prayer, he refused, saying, You are the governor here. Thus it is you who is best suited for being the imam. This demonstrates that he had no objection in being obedient to governors, nor did he view anarchy as being permissible. The simplicity of Hazrat Abu Zar becomes clearly evident from the fact that even after being deceived by Ibn Sauda, when he would argue with anhu that the funds of Baitul Mal should not be called the wealth of Allah, and even after submitting a complaint to Hazrat Usman anhu as well, he constantly continued to use the same term in his own speech. Once after this conflict, when he was in Razba, a caravan arrived. The people of the caravan inquired from him, We have seen your companions and they are incredibly affluent, but why are you living in such a state of poverty? He gave them the following response, They possess no right over the wealth of Allah, meaning the funds of Bait al-Mal, which I also do not possess. Similarly, he would also refer to the Abyssinian governor of that area as Rafiqun min malillahi, a servant of the wealth of Allah. This demonstrates that he would use the term himself as well. Furthermore, the fact that he could not help but uttering this phrase again and again testifies to the fact that this was a general figure of speech among the companions. However, Hazrat Abu Zar forgot this due to the deception of Ibn Sauda. This disorder, which is best described as a Bolshevik conflict, could not succeed in Syria due to the strategic planning of Hazrat Muawiyah. Nevertheless, in different forms, this view managed to spread in other regions and served as an aid in the work of Ibn Sauda. Ibn Sauda left from Syria and arrived in Egypt. This was the place that he chose to make the center of his scheme because it was very far from the capital. Secondly, the companions did not visit it as often as other areas. For this reason, the local people were comparatively less familiar with religion and more willing to take part in conflict. The deputy of Ibn Sauda, who was a resident of Kufa and shall be mentioned later on, was exiled a short period after these events. 
When asked in reply to the inquiry of Hazrat Muawiyah as to the state of the members of this new party in different countries, he said, I have been in correspondence with them, and it was I who guided them, not they. The people of Medina are the keenest in creating disorder, but they are the least capable. The people of Kufa raise objections on trivial matters, but they are not afraid of committing grave sins. The people of Basra attack together, but scatter when they flee. No doubt, it is the people of Egypt who are the most fit for mischief, but their shortcoming is that they become regretful soon after. After this, describing the situation of Syria, he said, They are the most obedient to their chiefs, and most obedient to those who mislead them. Footnote As shall be proven ahead, he lied when stating that the people of Medina were not at all involved in this disorder. And footnote This is the opinion of Ibn al-Kawa, who was a member of the party of Ibn Sauda. This establishes that Egypt was the most suitable place where Ibn Sauda could set up camp. When his shrewd eye of mischief caught sight of this, he selected this as his place of residence and made it a center of disorder. It was no time before a party had gathered around him. Now, headquarters of mischief had been established in every city. With great skill and intelligence, Ibn Sauda began to recruit such people who had either been sentenced or relatives of such people who were not content with their condition for one reason or another. He would express his view to such people according to their respective dispositions in order to gain their sympathy. Medina was safe from mischief and Syria was completely free from it as well. There were three centers where the material for conflict was being prepared, meaning Basra, Kufa, and Egypt. Egypt was the headquarters. However, Ibn Sauda had kept himself hidden behind veils, just like the experienced and philosophically minded anarchist of that era. He was the spirit behind this entire scheme, but others had been pushed to the forefront. Due to being nearby, and on account of the political superiority which Basra and Kufa enjoyed at the time, the people of these two cities appeared to be at the forefront of this revolution. However, if one looks closely, the pages of history clearly indicate that the reins of all of these schemes was in the hands of Ibn Sauda, who lived in Egypt. I have already mentioned that a party of men robbed the house of Ali bin Husayman al-Khazai in Kufa and then killed him, after which these murderers were executed at the gate of the city. The fathers of these young men were extremely shocked by this and desired to seek revenge from Walid bin Utbah, the governor of that region. They waited eagerly for an opportunity to seek revenge. These people became an excellent weapon for the rebels and fully utilized them. In order to seek revenge from Walid, they appointed spies so that they could find a shortcoming in Walid and inform them. The spies had to report something, so one day they came and relayed that Walid meets with a Muslim friend, Abu Zubair, who was previously a Christian and drinks alcohol. The rebels rose up and began to announce to the whole city that this was the state of their governor. The fervor of the masses is, after all, uncontrollable. Upon hearing this, a large party joined them, and they all besieged the house of Walid. There was no door, and as such everyone recklessly entered through the mosque, the door to his house opened into the mosque, and Walid only came to know of them when they were standing right before him. Upon seeing them, he became perplexed and quickly hid something away under the bed. They thought that they had caught the thief red-handed, and the secret had now been revealed. Without uttering a single word, someone promptly slipped his hand under the bed and pulled out the object. When they caught sight of it, they noticed that it was a tray with the food of the governor of Kufa and a bunch of grapes placed on it, which the governor had hidden only in the embarrassment that such a small quantity of food had been presented before the governor of such a wealthy province. At this, all of these people were left confounded and they turned on their heels in utter shame. 
they began to reproach one another for committing such a grave crime and for having discarded the commandments of the Sharia due to being deceived by a few mischievous people. In his embarrassment, Walid buried the matter and did not inform Hazrat Usman anhu of this incident. However, untimely this mercy of his, which he expressed to undeserving people, proved to be seriously detrimental for him and also for his deputy after him. Instead of being moved by his mercy, the rebels felt even more humiliated and began to connive for the destruction of Walid with even greater fervor than before. They went to Hazrat Usman as a delegation for the dismissal of Walid. However, Hazrat Usman refused to dismiss the governor without crime. When these people returned, they began to gather all such people who had been sentenced and collectively deliberated as to how, by hook or by crook, Walid could be disgraced. Two people named Abu Zainab and Abu Muwarri took it upon themselves to devise a scheme and actively began to sit in his gatherings. One day, they found an opportunity when no one else was around and Walid had gone to sleep in the men's section, which was partitioned from the ladies' section only by a sheet. The both of them slowly removed his ring and ran towards Medina, claiming to have seen Walid drunk. They asserted that the ring was proof of this and they had removed it without him noticing when he was in a state of intoxication. Hazrat Usman inquired, Did he drink alcohol in front of you? They did not dare respond in the affirmative, because if such had been the case, this would implicate that they too were involved with Walid. Instead, they responded, We saw him vomit alcohol. The ring was at hand as evidence, and two witnesses were present. In addition, a few other mischievous people accompanied them as well, in order to further strengthen their testimony and continue to furnish circumstantial testimony of the incident. Counsel was sought from the companions and it was decided that Walid would be punished for the consumption of alcohol. He was summoned from Kufa to Medina and last as a penalty for drinking. Although Walid defended himself and informed Hazrat Usman of their mischief, but Hazrat Usman responded, According to the law of the Sharia, you must receive a punishment as per the testimony of these witnesses. Of course, a person who gives false testimony will be punished by Allah the Exalted. Walid was deposed on a false account, but according to the counsel of the companions, Hazrat Usman sentenced him. Some witnesses and circumstantial evidence was present against him. It was necessary for him to be punished according to the law of the Sharia. Sa'id bin Alas was made the governor of Kufa and sent in his place. When he went to Kufa and saw the state that prevailed there, he was shocked. The delinquents of society and those who were unfamiliar with religion had primarily taken control and the well-mannered had been subjugated and suppressed. He informed Hazrat Usman of the matter, who advised him to restore the respect and honor of those who had offered great sacrifices and came forth to fight the opponents in earlier times. If, however, they demonstrated a lack of interest in religion, then of course he would replace them with those who were more pious. When this mischief had broken out in Kufa, Basra was not at rest. Through Hakim bin Jabla, an agent of Ibn Sauda and his accomplices, false allegations were being spread against the deputies of Hazrat Usman anhu there as well. In Egypt, which was the real headquarters, even greater havoc had been wreaked. Not only had Abdullah bin Sabah instigated political insurgency in this region, rather he was also ruining the religion of people. However, he did this in a manner that people who were ignorant of faith would consider him very sincere. As such, he would preach, saying, it is strange that various Muslims hold the belief that the Masih, on whom be peace, would return to the world again. 
Yet, they do not believe that the Holy Prophet ﷺ would be raised again. However, Allah the Exalted states in the Holy Qur'an, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَرَضَ عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لَرَادُكَ إِلَى مَعَادٍ He who has made the teaching of the Qur'an binding on you will most surely bring you back to the place of return. Surah Al-Qasas, chapter 28, verse 86 Footnote This prophecy was actually about the victory of Makkah, which was distorted by him in order to concoct the belief of Rajat. Since people travel to Makkah again and again for the purpose of Hajj and to attain spiritual reward, this is why it is also called Ma'ad, meaning a place where people return often. End of footnote. Many of his followers accepted this teaching of his and became convinced of the physical re-advent of the Holy Prophet ﷺ on earth, despite the fact that the Holy Qur'an strongly rejects the return to earth of those who have passed away. However, it is possible that in order to honor the name of such a person, Allah the Exalted raises someone else after having endowed him the morals and attributes of that person. However, this concept is at complete odds with the belief of reincarnation or the return of a person to earth. This is an obvious and clear fact. In addition to this belief of Rajat, Abdullah bin Sabah began to preach that thousands of prophets had passed away and every prophet possessed a wasi. Thus, the wasi of the Holy Prophet ﷺ was Hazrat Ali radiallahu anhu. Footnote on the word wasi. Literally, this word has many meanings, which include a testator, guardian, custodian, keeper, or administrator. However, in the context of the subject discussed in this book, it is a title given to Hazrat Ali radiallahu anhu by a group of Muslims who believe that he was meant to be the first Khalifa after the demise of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and that the Holy Prophet ﷺ had bequeathed him this office prior to his demise. End footnote. If the Holy Prophet ﷺ was Khatamul Anbiya, then Hazrat Ali anhu was Khatamul Awsiya. Then he would say, Who can be more unjust than a person who attacks the wasi of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and snatches his right? Therefore, Aside from the political strategies that this person employed in order to create rift in Islam, he had instigated a religious disorder as well. Furthermore, he was also conniving to corrupt the beliefs of Muslims, but took precautions to ensure that people considered him to be a Muslim. In this state of affairs, three years elapsed, and this mischievous group continued to carry out these secret conspiracies. This party continued to multiply in number. However, in this three-year period, no significant incident transpired except that two residents of Medina Manavara, named Muhammad bin Abi Bakr and Muhammad bin Abi Huzaifa, began to take part in this disorder to some extent as well. Muhammad bin Abi Bakr was the younger son of Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu, and except for the fact that he possessed the distinction of being the son of Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu, he held no religious merit. Muhammad bin Abi Huzaifa was an orphan who had been brought up by Hazrat Usman anhu. However, after reaching an age of maturity, he played a prominent role in the uprising against Hazrat Usman anhu. I shall explain why shortly hereafter. In the fourth year, this conflict took on somewhat of a terrifying state, and its originators thought that now it was appropriate to openly express their views and to wipe out the awe of the state. Consequently, in this regard as well, Kufa was first to advance. As I've already mentioned, Sa'id bin al-As was appointed governor of Kufa after Walid bin Utbah. From the outset, he had adopted the custom of only allowing noble townsmen to come into his company. 
However, at times, he would also hold an open gathering when men of all types would be allowed to come into his company. One day, they were sitting in such a gathering when the subject of the generosity of Hazrat Talha anhu came under discussion. Someone said that Hazrat Talha anhu always acted with extreme generosity. In response to this, Saeed happened to utter the words, He possesses a great deal of wealth, and so he is charitable. If he also possessed such wealth, we too would demonstrate such generosity and munificence. A young man naively said, If only such and such property, which once belonged to the royal treasury and had been kept for the benefit of ordinary Muslims, had been in your possession. At this, a few men who belonged to the party of rebels and were waiting for an opportunity to arise so that they could express their views began to express their anger. They asserted that the person had made the statement on the indication of Saeed, the governor of Kufa, so that a pathway could be paved in order to usurp this wealth. As such, they stood up and began to beat this person right before Saeed. When his father stood up to assist him, they thoroughly beat him as well. Saeed continuously attempted to restrain them, but they did not even pay heed to him, and beat the two until they both fell unconscious. When the public received news that certain people had committed such an act of mischief in the very presence of Saeed, they gathered outside his house armed. However, the perpetrators begged and pleaded Saeed for forgiveness and asked for his refuge. How could the generosity of an Arab, and then a one from the Quraysh, possibly bear to refuse the plea of an enemy for refuge at such an occasion? Said stepped out and said to the public, A few people fell to confrontation. The matter is of no significance, and everything is now in order. Everyone returned to their homes, and once again these people began to feel at ease. When Said was certain that the perpetrators were out of danger, he let them go. Then he addressed the people who had been beaten and said, As I already have given these people refuge, do not publicize their crime, or I shall be disgraced. Rest assured, however, that they shall not be allowed in my company again. The rebels had already succeeded in their real objective, meaning to create disturbance in the Islamic administration. Now they had begun to openly criticize Hazrat Usman and Saeed in their homes. The public was greatly offended by this behavior and complained to Saeed saying, These people are causing mischief in this manner. They criticize Hazrat Usman and you and seek to uproot the unity of Islam. We cannot tolerate this. Please resolve the matter. He replied, Inform Hazrat Usman of all the events yourself and the matter shall be dealt with in accordance with his instructions. All the noble people informed Hazrat Usman of the events, who ordered Saeed that if the leaders of Kufa unanimously agreed, these people should be exiled towards Syria and sent to Amir Mavia. Then he wrote to Amir Mavia saying, A few people who are openly bent upon creating disorder shall come to you from Kufa. Make preparations for their subsistence and devise a plan for their reform. If they improve and reform themselves, then treat them with compassion and overlook their faults. But if they persist in mischief, and punish them. This order of Hazrat Usman was based on immense wisdom because on the one hand, their living in Kufa would provoke the public's anger who were fully aware of their mischief and there was a danger of them being incited and causing them harm. On the other hand, it was also injurious because these people were residents there and possessed the degree of influence. If they had continued to live there, they would have become a means for misguiding many others. However, this verdict was issued at a time when much benefit could not be expected. If Ibn Amr, the governor of Basra, had also sought advice from Hazrat Usman regarding Ibn Sauda, and a similar instruction had been given for him, perhaps latter events may have turned out differently.
However, the state of the Muslims at the time demanded that such should be its fate and destiny, and so it occurred. These people who were exiled and should best be referred to as members of the party of Ibn Sabah were close to ten in number, although there is a disagreement in their actual number. The first strategy that Hazrat Maviyah adopted for their reformation was to treat them with great honor and reverence. He would eat with them and often go and sit in their company during his leisure time. After a few days, he advised them, saying, I have heard that you hold enmity for the Quraysh. Well, this should not be the case. It is through the Quraysh that Allah the Exalted has endowed glory to the Arabs. Your governors are like your shields, so do not part from these shields, for they bear hardship on your account and are concerned for you. If you do not value this, God the Exalted shall appoint such rulers upon you who shall oppress you severely, shall not value your patience, and a punishment shall befall you in this very world. Then in the hereafter, you shall be punished along with these tyrant rulers for their oppression, because it was you who became the means for their having assumed power. Footnote It is clearly evident from the statement of Hazrat Maviyah and the reply of these people that they were not opposed to Hazrat Usman or his appointed governors. They opposed the Quraysh. In other words, they harbored jealousy against those who were the foremost in belief. If a companion other than Hazrat Usman had been Khalifa, and other governors had been appointed in place of those who already held office, these people would have held enmity towards them in the same manner, because their only objective was to attain grandeur. End footnote. Upon hearing the admonition of Hazrat Maviyah, one of them replied, Do not speak of the Quraysh. Neither were they greater than us in number before, nor are they greater now. And as for the shield you speak of, if it is snatched, it is we who shall receive it. Hazrat Maviyah said, It appears that you are foolish as well. I speak to you about the teachings of Islam, and you remind me of the era of Jahiliyyah, which literally means ignorance and refers to the pre-Islamic era. The question is not of the minority or majority of the Quraysh, but of the responsibility Islam has laid upon them. No doubt the Quraysh are few, but when God the Exalted has honored them with the religion of Islam and has continued to protect them since time immemorial due to their connection with Makkah, then who can compete with the bounty of God? When they were disbelievers, He protected them due to this insignificant connection. Now, after accepting Islam, they have become the upholders of His religion. Would then God the Exalted waste them now? Keep in mind that you became Muslim along with the crowd upon witnessing the victory of Islam. Now, Satan is using you as a weapon in order to destroy Islam and desires to create rift in religion. However, Allah the Exalted shall cast you into a greater trial than the one you desire to create. In my opinion, you are not the least worthy of any attention. The people who wrote to the Khalifa with regards to you committed a mistake. Neither can any benefit be expected of you, nor harm. Upon listening to all of the advice of Hazrat Mavi, these people said, we order you to step down from your office. Hazrat Maviyah replied, If the Khalifa and the Muslim leaders ask me to, then I shall resign from office today. Who are you to interfere in these matters? I advise you to mend your ways and to adopt piety. Allah the Exalted does His work Himself. If matters were decided in accordance to your wishes, then the work of Islam would come to ruin. In actuality, you are averse to the very religion of Islam. In your hearts is one thing and upon your tongues is quite the opposite. However, one day, Allah the Exalted shall certainly disclose your intentions and secret schemes. As such, Hazrat Maviyah spent a great deal of time advising them, but they only continued to move further in their disrespect. 
Ultimately, when they were left speechless, they attacked Hazrat Muawiyah in an attempt to kill him, but Hazrat Muawiyah scolded them, saying, This is Syria, not Kufa. If the Syrians learn of this, they shall not remain silent as the people of Kufa did upon the request of Sa'id. In their vehemence, the masses shall not even listen to me and tear you to pieces. Having said this, Hazrat Muawiyah left the gathering and sent them back to Kufa. He then wrote to Hazrat Usman, These people are not the least worthy of attention due to their foolishness and ignorance. We should not give them any attention. It should also be written to Sa'id, the governor of Kufa, not to pay any attention to them. They are irreligious people and averse to Islam. They desire to rob the wealth of those in a position of responsibility and have the habit of creating disorder. They do not have the strength to cause harm themselves without the aid of others. The opinion of Hazrat Muawiyah was absolutely correct, but he was unaware that there was a soul hiding outside his territory in Egypt who was using all of them, and his cause was best served by using their ignorance and foolishness. When these people left Damascus, they abandoned their plan of going to Kufa, since the people who lived there were already familiar with their mischief. They also feared that they would suffer harm there. Hence, they went toward Jazeera. The governor of this region, Abdul Rahman, was the pious son of the renowned general who had left behind a shining legacy of courage and bravery for the whole world, meaning Khalid bin Walid. When he learnt of their arrival, he immediately called for them and said, I have heard of your state of affairs. May Allah ruin me if I am unable to reform you. You are aware that I am the son of that man who removed the disorder of apostasy and emerged victorious from great difficulties. I shall see whether you are able to talk to me in the manner that you spoke to Muawiyah and Sa'id. Listen here, if you utter a word of mischief to someone here, then I shall give you a punishment that you will never forget. Having said this, he confined them and ordered them to always remain with him. When he would go on journey, he would take them along with him on foot, and he would inquire, How do you feel now? Punishment is the remedy of a person who is not reformed by virtue. Why do you not speak now? These people would express remorse and seek repentance for their mischief. After some time had elapsed, Abdurrahman bin Khalid bin Walid thought that they had been reformed. As such, he sent a person from among them by the name of Malik to Hazrat Usman in order to beg for forgiveness. He came before Hazrat Usman and repented and expressed remorse and asked forgiveness for himself and his companions. Hazrat Usman forgave him and inquired as to where he desired to live. Malik replied that now he wished to stay with Abdurrahman bin Khalid. Hazrat Usman granted him permission and he returned to Abdurrahman bin Khalid. His desire to stay with Abdurrahman bin Khalid indicates that his heart had certainly been cleansed at the time. If not, he would not have desired to return to such a man who would not tolerate mischief for even a minute. However, later events substantiate that his repentance was only temporary and the opinion of Hazrat Muawiyah was correct and that these were foolish people who were only good for being used as weapons. In the meantime, Abdullah bin Sabah had not remained idle. Quite the contrary, for some time he had adopted the strategy of dispatching agents to various regions and thus spread his views. Without a shadow of doubt, this was a man of extraordinary intelligence and judgment. The orders he would give to his agents shed ample light on the framework of his mind. While dispatching his representatives, he would advise them, do not be hasty in disclosing your views to people at once. Rather, exhort and advise them first. Recite to them the injunctions of the Sharia. 
enjoin goodness and forbid evil. When the people observe this manner of admonition, their hearts will be drawn towards you. They will listen to you with enthusiasm and will begin to trust you. Only then present your particular views skillfully. They will accept them very quickly. Moreover, be cautious not to speak against Hazrat Usman anhu at the very outset. Rather, incite people against his representatives first. The purpose behind this was that since the people held a special religious attachment with Hazrat Usman anhu, they would become enraged upon hearing words against him. However, they would accept statements against governors as this would not move their religious sentiments. In this manner, when their hearts would turn black and the obstinacy that results from joining a certain party would develop, then it would become easier to incite them against Hazrat Usman anhu. This person realized that whenever the shortcomings of provincial governors were mentioned, the wise would refuse to accept them, because these people knew that they were false and unfounded based on their own observation, and widespread uproar would not arise throughout the country. Therefore, he undertook another dangerous scheme. Instead of defaming the governors of various regions in their own jurisdictions, he ordered his representatives to write the failings of governors to other provinces, because the people of other regions would easily accept such statements due to their unfamiliarity with the circumstances of that area. According to this proposal, rebels of all the various regions would write false complaints and cruelties of their local governors to the sympathetic people of other towns. These people would then read such letters to others, and many of them would be convinced of their truth due to being unaware of the circumstances in foreign lands. They would feel grieved at the thought that their brethren were afflicted by extreme difficulties in such and such land. At the same time, they would also be grateful that by the grace of Allah their own governors were kind and that they were at ease. However, they were unaware that the people in other provinces believed themselves to be in a state of comfort and others in difficulty, and they were thankful for their own condition and felt a concern for the state of others. Since the people of Medina were receiving correspondence from all four fronts, those among them who considered these letters as being true would think that perhaps atrocities were being perpetrated in every province and hardships were befalling the Muslims. Hence, the deception of Abdullah bin Sabah proved to be very effective and by this means he managed to gain thousands of sympathetic people who would have been difficult to find without such a scheme. When this disturbance exceeded all bounds and even the noble companions began to receive letters of complaint against governors, together they approached Hazrat Usman anhu and submitted, Are you not aware of what is taking place outside Medina? Hazrat Usman anhu replied, The reports that I receive indicate nothing but peace and tranquility. The companions responded that they were receiving letters of such and such subject matter and they should be investigated. At this, Hazrat Usman sought their counsel as to how the investigation should be carried out. According to their proposal, Osama bin Zayd was sent to Basra, Muhammad bin Maslama to Kufa, Abdullah bin Umar to Syria, and Amar bin Yasir to Egypt, in order to investigate the state of affairs and report whether the governors were actually treating their citizens unjustly oppressing them, and usurping the rights of people. In addition to these four, he also dispatched some others to various lands so that they could provide a report of the conditions there. These people went and returned after having performed their investigation and all of them reported that it was peaceful everywhere and that Muslims were living their lives in complete freedom. No one was infringing upon their rights and the governors were acting with equity and justice. However, Ammar bin Yasser was delayed and no news came from him. I will now mention why Ammar bin Yasir was delayed later on, but first I would like to mention something about this investigative committee and the significance of this investigation. The reason being 
that the true reality of this disorder becomes clearly evident by fully understanding the specifics of this delegation. The first thing that is worthy of attention is the stature of the three leading members of this delegation who return to submit their reports. The status of the people carrying out this investigation demonstrates the significance of the investigation. If such people had been dispatched as part of this delegation who desired something from Hazrat Usman and his deputies, or who, on account of their low and insignificant spiritual and worldly status, may have feared the governors or harbored greed, it could be suggested that these people refrain from disclosing the truth on account of their greed or fear. However, such an allegation cannot be leveled against them. Furthermore, by selecting these people to perform this task, Hazrat Usman had furnished clear evidence of his pure intention. Usama, the one sent to Basra, was not only the son of Hazrat Zayd, who was first among those who believed, but was also from among the closest and dearest ones of the Holy Prophet. He was the very person upon whom the Holy Prophet ﷺ conferred the position of being commander-in-chief of the magnificent army that was prepared during his final illness. He also positioned eminent companions like Hazrat Umar in subordination to him. This selection by the Holy Prophet ﷺ was not merely an act of encouragement. In fact, later events established that he was capable of achieving great feats. The Holy Prophet ﷺ displayed so much love for him that spectators would be unable to differentiate whether he loved him more or Hazrat Imam Hassan. Muhammad bin Muslim, who was sent to Kufa, was also from among the most venerable companions. He was looked upon with great reverence amongst the companions and was very influential. Abdullah bin Umar, who was sent to Syria, is among those who require no introduction. He was among the foremost Muslims who pledged their allegiance. He was so great in his piety and righteousness that on account of this particular merit, even the most prominent companions displayed a special respect for him. After Hazrat Ali, if the sight of the companions and other noble men fell upon anyone for succession to Khilafat, then it was him. However, he had made it a practice to remain secluded from the world. He possessed such indignation for those things that were deemed sacred in religion that on certain occasions he even vehemently debated Umar bin al-Khattab Hence, in speaking the truth, he was an unsheathed sword. His appointment for Syria was a most perfect appointment. Hazrat Mawiyah had long been the governor of Syria and held a position of great awe upon the residents there. Due to his intelligence, investigating his administration was not the task of an ordinary person. It was futile to send anyone else to this region, and no one would have been satisfied with the investigation of such a person. However, his excellence in faith, indignation for Islam, far-sightedness, righteousness and piety were such merits before which even Mawiyah could not dare to utter a word. In his presence, the awe of Hazrat Mawiyah could not influence anyone. Therefore, the people who were sent to carry out this investigation were magnificent and neutral people and no one can raise an objection against their findings. The unanimous verdict of these three companions, along with the rest of those who were sent to other countries, that there was absolute peace and security, no sign of injustice and tyranny, and governors were acting with complete equality and justice, and if they were liable to be blamed, it was only inasmuch that they compelled people to remain within boundaries, was such a verdict which leaves no room for doubt. It is clearly evident that all this disorder was a result of the mischief of a few transgressors and the instigation of Abdullah bin Sabah. Hazrat Usman and his representatives were free from all objections.
In truth, this entire disturbance was the result of a secret conspiracy hatched by the Jews. They were joined by certain Muslims who were attracted to the desire of the world and had left their faith. Neither were the provincial governors to blame for this, nor were they the cause of this disorder. Their only fault was that they had been appointed by Hazrat Usman anhu, and the fault of Hazrat Usman anhu, was that he was holding fast to the rope of Islamic unity despite his old age and physical weakness. He was carrying the burden of the Muslim Ummah upon his shoulders and was concerned for the establishment of the Islamic Sharia. He would not allow the rebellious and tyrannous to oppress the weak and helpless according to their desire. As such, the following incident testifies to the truth of this fact. When the same rebels held a meeting in Kufa and they began to discuss how disorder may be created in Muslim affairs, everyone unanimously gave the opinion, Wallahi la yarfa'u rasun ma dama uthmanu ala nasi By God, no one can dare to raise their head so long as the reign of Usman anhu prevails. It was the very person of Hazrat Usman anhu himself which prevented rebellion. It was necessary to move him aside in order for these people to freely achieve their goals. Earlier, I explained that Ahmad bin Yasir, who had been sent to Egypt, did not return. There was a delay in receiving news from him to such extent that the residents of Medina thought that he may have been killed. However, the fact of the matter was that due to his simplicity and unfamiliarity with politics, he had fallen into the clutches of the rebels, who were disciples of Abdullah bin Sabah. As Abdullah bin Sabah was present in Egypt himself, he was not oblivious to the fact that if this investigative committee reported a state of peace and security throughout the land, everyone would turn against him. The decision to send this delegation had been made so suddenly that he was unable to make arrangements in other provinces. However, it was easy for him to make arrangements in Egypt. He welcomed Omar bin Yasser as soon as he arrived in Egypt and began to describe the weaknesses and cruelties of the governor of Egypt. Omar bin Yasser was unable to safeguard himself from the enchantment of his words. Instead of carrying out an unbiased investigation, he did not even approach the governor of Egypt, nor did he carry out an ordinary investigation. On the contrary, he went along with this group of rebels and began to raise objections with them. Amar bin Yasser is the only person from among the companions about whom it is categorically proven that he became entrapped in the snare of rebels. Aside from him, no other prominent companion participated in such an act. If anyone from among them has been inflicted, such a notion has been refuted by other narrations. There was a particular reason for Ammar bin Yasir being deceived. As soon as he arrived in Egypt, he happened to meet a group of eloquent and well-spoken people who appeared to be reliable. They began to complain to him about the governor of Egypt with great skill. Coincidentally, the governor of Egypt was a man who had once been a bitter enemy of the Holy Prophet At the victory of Makkah, the Holy Prophet ﷺ had commanded that he should be killed even if he was to be found in the vicinity of the Kaaba. Even though the Holy Prophet ﷺ later forgave him, his former opposition had left traces of dislike upon the hearts of certain companions, which included Ahmad anhu. Therefore, upon hearing complaints against such a person, Ahmad anhu was very quickly influenced and accepted all of the allegations that would be leveled against him as being true. While capitalizing on neutral sentiment, the Sabais, meaning the supporters of Abdullah bin Sabah, would highlight this particular issue as a means against the governor. The goodness of intention and sincerity of Hazrat Usman anhu, may be gauged from the fact that despite all the delegations giving a verdict absolving the governors, 
Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu valued this single view to such extent that he wrote a letter to all various regions. The contents of the letter was Ever since I have become the Khalifa, I have acted upon enjoining equity and forbidding evil, and my relatives do not hold a superior right to ordinary Muslims. However, I have come to know from certain residents of Medina that the governors beat people and hurl abuse at them. For this reason, I make an open announcement by way of this letter that whomsoever has been sworn at or beaten in secrecy should meet me in Makkah Mukarramah on the occasion of Hajj. In return for any injustice done by my hand or by my governors, retribution may be sought from me and my representatives, or if such a person wills, he may forgive us. Allah the Exalted Himself rewards those who give sadqa, meaning those who forgive. When this brief but painful letter was read out upon the pulpits throughout the land, the Muslim world was shook from end to end. Listeners helplessly burst into tears and everyone prayed for Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu. Everyone expressed displeasure towards these transgressors who were attacking and causing grief to a man who held sympathy for the Muslim ummah and carried its burdens. Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu did not cease at this. He especially summoned his governors in order to answer for the allegations which had been leveled against them. When all of the governors had come together, he inquired of them, What is the reason for these allegations being leveled against you? I fear that they may be true. In response to this, they all submitted. You have sent reliable people and discovered that no injustice is being perpetrated, nor is anything being committed in violation of the Sharia. Furthermore, the reliable people you dispatched inquired of the state of affairs from all the people. Not a single person came before them and claimed that these complaints were valid. What room, then, is there for doubt? By God, these people have not spoken the truth, nor have they acted with the fear of Allah. Their allegations have no foundation. It cannot be permissible to hold one accountable for such baseless things, nor can such statements be relied upon. Hazrat Usman anhu responded, then suggest as to what should be done. At this, many suggestions were given to him. In summary, it was suggested that Hazrat Usman anhu should act sternly when the occasion demanded and not show leniency towards these mischief-makers, for this only increases them in fearlessness. An evil person can only be reformed through punishment. Leniency should only be exhibited towards such a person who derives benefit from it. After listening to suggestions of everyone, Hazrat Usman anhu said, the disorders which the Holy Prophet ﷺ has informed us about are bound to take place, but they can be deferred for some time through gentleness and love. Therefore, except in the case of apparent violations of the law, I will treat them with leniency, so that no one may hold a valid objection against me. Allah the Exalted knows that I have not been miserly in showing kindness to people. It would be joyous if Usman were to die, and the flood of disorders which are soon to overcome Islam had not yet surged forth. Go, therefore, and treat people with compassion. Give them their rights and overlook their faults. Of course, if someone violates the injunctions of Allah the Exalted, then do not show leniency and forgiveness to such people. On the return from Hajj, Hazrat Muawiyah also accompanied Hazrat Usman to Medina. After having stayed there for a few days, when he was about to depart, he met Hazrat Usman in privacy and said, It appears that disorder is growing. If you permit, may I submit something in this regard? Hazrat Usman said, Go on. Upon this he said, My first proposal is that you accompany me to Syria as it is peaceful there in every respect. There is no disorder whatsoever. 
I fear that if disorder suddenly arises, we may not be able to make arrangements at the time. Hazrat Usman anhu replied, I cannot leave the neighborhood of the Holy Prophet wasallam under any circumstance, even if my body is torn to pieces. Hazrat Maviyah anhu said, Then my second proposal is that you grant me permission to send a contingent of the Syrian army for your protection. No one shall be able to make mischief in its presence. Hazrat Usman anhu replied, Neither can I burden Bayt al-Mal to such extent in order to safeguard the life of Usman, nor can I tolerate putting the people of Medina to difficulty by maintaining a military presence. Upon this, Hazrat Maviyah anhu submitted, Then my third proposal is that you send off the companions to various countries, because in their presence, people possess the courage to assume that if you do not remain, someone else may be put forward in your stead. Hazrat Usman anhu replied, How is it possible for me to scatter those whom the Holy Prophet wasallam has gathered? Upon hearing this, Hazrat Maviyah anhu began to weep and submitted, If you do not accept any of these strategies which I have proposed for your protection, then at least announce to the people, If any harm comes to me, then Maviyah shall possess the right to retaliate on my behalf. Perhaps people shall refrain from making mischief in fear on this account. Hazrat Usman anhu replied, Maviyah, what is to happen will surely come to pass. I cannot grant this permission, since you possess a stern disposition and may treat the Muslims harshly. Thereupon, Hazrat Maviyah anhu stood up weeping and said, I fear this may be our last meeting. When he stepped outside, he said to the companions, The fate of Islam rests upon you. Hazrat Usman has now fallen very weak. Disorder is escalating. Please do look after him. After saying this, Maaviyah set off for Syria. The absence of provincial governors from their respective regions was not an opportunity that Abdullah bin Sabah would simply allow to slip away. He immediately relayed a message in all directions, saying, Now is the perfect time for us to act. Let us choose one day and launch a sudden attack upon the governors of our respective provinces. However, they were still consulting one another when the governors happened to return. The Sabais, meaning supporters of Abdullah bin Sabah, in other areas were left in despair. But as for those in Kufa who were already habitual in being at the forefront of practical disorder, did not let this opportunity slip away. A person by the name of Yazid bin Qais held a gathering in the Kufa mosque and announced that Hazrat Usman anhu should now be removed from the office of Khilafat. When Kaka bin Amr anhu who was the officer of the military post there heard of this, he came to arrest him. Yazid bin Qais made a plea before him stating, I am not acting disobediently. We have only gathered to hold a meeting about Sa'id bin Alas so that we can request his return from here and the appointment of a new officer in his stead. The officer replied, There is no need to hold gatherings for this purpose. Write your complaints and send them to Hazrat Usman. He will appoint another governor and send him here. What is the difficulty in this? The reason he said this was because in the time of the Khulafa, whenever a complaint would arise against governors, in most cases they would be replaced out of a concern for the welfare of people. Upon hearing this reply of Kaka, they seemingly dispersed, but continued to conspire in secret. Ultimately, Yazid bin Qais, who was the leader of the Sabais in Kufa at the time, sent someone with a letter to Homs and told him to bring back those who had been exiled from Kufa and whose incident has been mentioned earlier. The subject matter of this letter was that the people of Egypt have joined us 
As soon as you receive this letter, return immediately without a moment's delay. How ironic is it that the people who were demonstrating rage and raising allegations against the Khalifa of the time, the foremost in faith and the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, were those who had them themselves abandoned the obligatory prayers. Is it possible that indignation for Islam should only manifest itself within the faithless? If a shortcoming or something in contradiction with the Sharia truly existed in Hazrat Usman anhu or his governors, then the people who would have expressed their anger against this would have been Ali, Talha, Zubair, Saad bin Waqas, Abdullah bin Amr, Osama bin Zaid, Abdullah bin Abbas, Abu Musa al-Ashari, Huzaifa bin al-Yaman, Abu Huraira, Abdullah bin Salam, Ubadah bin Samit, and Muhammad bin Maslama. May Allah be pleased with all of them. Na Yazid bin Qas and Ashtar. The messenger reached Jazira with the letter and handed it over to the people who had been exiled from Kufa. When they read it, except for Ashtar, all the others disliked it, as he had already witnessed the influence of Abdurrahman bin Khalid. However, as for Ashtar, who had gone to Medina in order to seek forgiveness from Hazrat Usman, anhu, was unable to keep his repentance intact and immediately set out for Kufa. When his friends saw that Ashtar had left for Kufa, they became frightened that Abdurrahman would not believe them and think that all of this had taken place on their suggestion. So out of this fear, these people fled as well. When Abdurrahman bin Khalid bin Walid learned of this, he sent his men in pursuit of them, but they were unable to apprehend them. One manzil after another, Malik al-Ashtar reached Kufa in no time. Footnote. A manzil is a distant equivalent to 19 miles or 25 kilometers. End footnote. He deemed it against his honor to enter the city empty-handed. This person who came from Jazeera to meet his companions, having covered two manzils at a time, as if they were one, began to announce his arrival from Medina. In order to incite the people, he began to say, I have just left behind Sa'id bin al-As, who I accompanied for a distance of one manzil. He openly says, I shall stain the chastity of the woman of Kufa. And he also says, The properties in Kufa are the wealth of the Quraysh. Furthermore, he boastfully recites the following couplet: "Wailun li ashraf nisa'i minni, samahmahunka annani min jin." Meaning, noble women shall fall to trial because of me. I am a man so powerful as if from among the jinn. The ordinary masses lost their senses due to his statements, and they believed everything that he said. Fury instantly surged forth. The wise and learned tried their utmost to convince them and said. This is deception, do not be misled. But who could tame the public outrage? No one paid heed to them. A man stood up and announced, Whoever wishes to request the dismissal of Sa'id bin al-As, the governor of Kufa, and the appointment of another governor, should immediately join Yazid bin Qais. People rushed out upon hearing this announcement, and no one remained in the mosque except for the learned and noble, and those who were in authority. Umar bin al-Jurayd was the acting governor for Sa'id in his absence. He began to deliver an exhortation to the remaining people and said, O people, remember the favor of God the exalted upon us when we were enemies. He united your hearts and you became as brothers. You were on a brink of a pit of destruction and God the exalted saved you from it. So do not cast yourself into the affliction which God the exalted has saved you from. Do you not recognize the truth? and come to its doorstep after having accepted Islam, receiving divine guidance, and in the presence of the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet Kaka bin Amr anhu responded, 
You desire to stop this disorder through admonition, but do not hope of this. Nothing but the sword can stop these disturbances, and the time is not far when even the sword will be unsheathed. At that time, these people will cry like lambs and wish that this era should return again, but God the Exalted would not bestow this favor upon them again until the Day of Judgment. The public gathered outside the town, faced Medina, and began to wait for Sa'id bin al-As When he came before them, they said to him, Turn back, we are in no need of you. Sa'id replied, What is the wisdom behind so many people gathering and coming out for this purpose? In order to stop one person, why were a thousand men needed? It would have sufficed you to send a man towards the Khalifa and a man towards me. After saying this, he spurred on his mount and returned to Medina in order to warn Hazrat Usman while these people were left astonished. Shortly thereafter, they spotted one of his servants and killed him. Sa'id bin al-As reached Medina and informed Hazrat Usman of the entire conflict. Hazrat Usman asked, Have they risen up against me? Sa'id replied, They make it seem as if a new governor is being requested. He inquired, Who do they ask for? He replied, They prefer Abu Musa al-Ashari. Appointment of Abu Musa al-Ashari as the governor of Kufa Hazrat Usman said, I appoint Abu Musa al-Ashari as the governor of Kufa. By God, I shall give these people no opportunity to raise an objection or allow them to find fault. In response to their statements, I shall demonstrate patience as per the commandment of the Holy Prophet and tell the time that they desire arrives, meaning the removal of Usman. This conflict disclosed that these people did not even slightly refrain from speaking lies and falsehood. Conspiracies of the Rebels Exposed The fleeing of Malik al-Ashtar from Jazeera, under the pretense of coming from Medina, leveling a false allegation upon Sa'id bin Ar-As and attributing disgraceful and self-concocted things towards him, were not matters which could allow the true motives and secret intentions of the rebels to remain hidden. In fact, this evidently demonstrates that these people were completely oblivious to Islam. Islam does not permit falsehood, does not advocate deception, and slandering is a grave crime in Islam. However, these people who apparently professed love and indignation for Islam told lies and slandered others. All the while, they felt no shame in doing so. Hence, their hue and cry against Hazrat Usman was sufficient proof of the fact that this commotion was not on account of any real shortcoming. Rather, it was the result of being distanced from Islam and irreligiousness. The second conclusion which is derived from this incident is that these people did not possess even a single legitimate complaint against Hazrat Usman and his governors. For if a complaint truly existed, what need was there for them to fabricate lies? The invention of false complaints alone is sufficient evidence of the fact that these people had no real complaint. As such, we see that before the arrival of Ashtar, when Yazid held a gathering, only a few soldiers participated at the time. When Kaka prohibited them, they became afraid and put off their gathering. However, we see that within the very same month after being influenced by the lies of Ashtar, a large segment of the people had joined these people and set out from Kufa in order to stop Sa'id and request the appointment of another governor. This is testimony to the fact that initially, people would not be easily deceived by the rebels because they had no means to incite them.
When Ashtar managed to invent a means, which was enough to spark the people's indignation, a section of the public fell into this trap and joined them. The emergence of this disorder also clearly establishes that the actual opposition of these people was against Hazrat Usman anhu and not his governors. For in the beginning, it was he against whom the rebels desired to incite the people. However, when they noticed that no one would join them in this, rather, they would begin to oppose them, these people began to incite the people against the governors. The fact that the rebels were heading for Medina with a large party also proves that they did not harbor good intentions for Hazrat Usman anhu. Furthermore, their needlessly killing the freed slave of Sayyid bin al-As demonstrates that in order to fulfill their ends, these people felt no hindrance in committing any crime whatsoever. It appears that by now, these people had begun to perceive that if there was even a slight delay, the Muslim people would come to learn of the gravity of their mischief. For this reason, they were deeply concerned in attaining their objective in whatever way and as quickly as possible. However, with his wisdom, Hazrat Usman anhu dismissed their excuses once again. He appointed Abu Musa al-Ashri anhu as the governor and immediately informed the people. Their hopes had already been frustrated when Sa'id bin al-As anhu returned and informed the people of Medina of their motives. Their plans under deliberation of suddenly occupying Medina were frustrated and they were forced to turn back. Now, with the appointment of Abu Musa al-Ashri anhu as the governor, their objections had been completely done away with because these people desired his appointment as governor for some time. When Abu Musa al-Ashri came to know of his appointment as the governor of Kufa, he gathered everyone and said, O people, never set out for such works again and adopt unity and obedience. Act patiently and refrain from haste because now an Amir is among you, meaning, I have been appointed as the Amir. Upon this, the people requested him to lead them in prayer, but he refused, saying, No, this will never happen. Obedience to the ruler of the time is necessary. He went on to state, I shall not become your Imam until you affirm complete obedience to Hazrat Usman and declare that you will accept his orders. Upon this, the people promised that they would show complete obedience to him in the future and accept his orders. It was only then that Abu Musa al-Ashri led them in prayer. Similarly, Hazrat Abu Musa anhu told them, Hearken, I have heard the Holy Prophet say, At a time when people are under an imam, anyone who rises up to create disaccord among them and to scatter their community should be executed, whoever he may be. The Holy Prophet has not stipulated the condition of the imam being equitable. In other words, you cannot say that Hazrat Usman is not just. For even if this is accepted as being true, your action is still unwarranted because the Holy Prophet has not stipulated the condition of justice. Instead, the Holy Prophet has merely stated that there should be a ruler over the people. These were the views of those people who had spent their entire lives in the service of Islam and who had heard the teachings of Islam directly from the lips of the Holy Prophet Moreover, they had received an attestation of approval by acting upon these teachings in his presence. What to talk of praying behind these rebels? They did not even desire to become their imam in prayer and consider them liable for capital punishment. Can it be said about such people that they were a part of the conflict in the era of Hazrat Usman anhu, or that Hazrat Usman anhu and his governors were usurping the rights of the citizens? Similarly, in light of these events, can it be accepted that these rebels were creating disorder on their behalf? 
Of course not. In fact, this rebel party was bent upon creating disorder out of its jealousy towards the community of companions, and these people hid their heartfelt views. Their real objective was the destruction of the Islamic government, and this objective could not be achieved without moving Hazrat Usman anhu aside. Not catching on to their deception, certain ignorant or faithless Muslims joined them as well, either out of their selfishness or simplicity. Another Conspiracy of the Mischief Makers After the appointment of Hazrat Abu Musa al-Ashri as governor, there remained no reason for these people to create disorder. However, the real instigators of this conflict could not have been pleased with all their efforts going to waste in this manner. Hence, written correspondence began, and it was decided that a few people from all the provinces should set out towards Medina in the form of delegations. There, they should deliberate as to the future course of action, and certain questions should also be posed to Hazrat Usman so that these discussions may be published in all directions, and people may become convinced that the allegations leveled against Hazrat Usman have been proven beyond doubt. After deciding the matter, they all left their homes and headed for Medina. When they reached close to Medina, Hazrat Usman learned of their arrival. He sent two men to inquire about them and ascertain the real purpose of their arrival, and then report back to him. The two of them left and met this caravan outside Medina. During the course of discussion, these people revealed to the two informants their state of affairs. The two of them asked whether anyone from the people of Medina was with them. This treacherous group replied that there were three people in Medina, and besides them, they did not have a fourth supporter. The two inquired, Then what is your intention? They replied, Our intention is to go to Medina in order to speak to Hazrat Usman regarding certain matters which we have already instilled into the minds of people. Then we will return to our towns and tell everyone that we have raised many objections against Hazrat Usman and establish their validity. But he has refused to abstain from these things and did not repent. Then we will leave, under the pretense of going for Hajj, and besiege him upon reaching Medina. If he steps down from Khilafat, then well and good. Otherwise, we will kill him. The Conspiracy Exposed both of these informants returned with a full report of their findings and briefed Hazrat Usman Upon hearing their state of affairs, Hazrat Usman began to laugh and pray to God the Exalted. O oh Allah, save these people from going astray. They will be ruined if you do not save them. Then, regarding the three men from among the people of Medina who were with the mischief makers, he said, As for Ammar, he is angry because he attacked Abbas bin Utbah bin Abi Lahab and he was reprimanded for this. Whereas Muhammad bin Abi Bakr has turned arrogant and thinks that no law is binding upon him and Muhammad bin Abi Huzaifa is putting himself in trouble for no reason. Then Hazrat Usman anhu called the mischief makers and gathered the companions of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as well. Hazrat Usman anhu summons the mischief makers. When everyone had gathered, Hazrat Usman informed them of the whole affair. The two informants also stood as witnesses and gave their testimony. Upon this, all the companions gave the following verdict. Execute these people, because the Holy Prophet has said, May the curse of Allah be upon such an individual who calls people towards his own obedience or the obedience of another at a time when there is an imam who is present. Kill such a person, whoever he may be. Then, they reminded everyone of the words of Hazrat Umar 
I do not deem the execution of any such person permissible for you, in which I do not have a part. In other words, no one may be executed unless there is an indication from the government. Upon hearing the verdict of the companions, Hazrat Usman stated, No, we will forgive them and accept their pleas. We will counsel them with all our efforts, and we will not oppose anyone, so long as he does not clearly violate the law or express disbelief. Hazrat Usman clears himself of all charges. Then Hazrat Usman said, These people have mentioned certain things which you are aware of as well. However, their plan is to debate with me on these issues so that they can return and say, We engaged in a debate with Usman regarding these matters, and he has been defeated. These people allege that whilst on journey, I offered the prayer in full, but the Holy Prophet used to perform qasr while on journey. Footnote Qasr is the shortened version of the obligatory prayer, which is offered as such in certain circumstances. End footnote. However, it was only in Mina where I offered the prayer in full, and even that was due to two reasons. Firstly, because I owned property there, and I had married there. Secondly, because I came to know that in those days people had converged for the Hajj, and the uneducated from among them would begin to say that the Khalifa only offers two rakat, so there must only be two rakat in the prayer. Is this not true? Footnote A rakat is a cycle in the formal Muslim prayer. Plural, rakat. End footnote The companions replied, Yes, this is correct. Then Hazrat Usman said, The second allegation that they raise is that I have introduced the innovation of establishing public pastures, although this is a false accusation. Pastures were established before me. They were introduced by Hazrat Umar and I have only made them more spacious due to the growing number of camels which are given in alms. Then, the land designated for public pastures is not the wealth of anyone. I have no benefit in this. I have only two camels, whereas at the time when I became Khalifa, I was more wealthy than all the Arabs. Now I only have two camels which I keep for Hajj. Is this not true? The noble companions affirmed, Indeed it is. Then Hazrat Usman said, They say that I appoint comparatively young men as governors, even though I only appoint such individuals as governors who possess virtuous attributes and manners. Holy men before me appointed even younger people as governors than those appointed by me. Far more objections were raised against the Holy Prophet ﷺ for appointing Osama bin Zaid as the general of an army than are now being raised against me. Is this not true? The companions responded, It is true. These people raise objections before the people, but hide the real events. In this manner, Hazrat Usman stated all the objections one by one and refuted them one after another. The companions emphatically persisted that they should be executed, but Hazrat Usman did not agree and released them. Tabari states, Abal Muslimuna illa qatalahum wa aba illa tarkahum. The rest of the Muslims were adamant on having them executed, but Hazrat Usman could not be convinced in any way to punish them. Hazrat Usman shows mercy towards the mischief makers. This incident shows the various types of falsehood and deception which would be employed by the mischief makers. In that era, when the press and means of transport were not as developed as today, it was very easy for these people to mislead the uneducated. In reality, however, these people had no legitimate reason to rise up. Neither did the truth support them, nor did they speak the truth. 
All their endeavors were founded upon lies and falsehood. It was only the mercy of Hazrat Usman that was saving them. Otherwise, the Muslims would have torn them to pieces. The companions could not have ever tolerated that the peace and security which they had achieved by sacrificing their lives be done away with in this manner by the mischief of a few wicked people. They could see that the Islamic State would crumble if these people were not promptly punished. However, Hazrat Usman was an embodiment of mercy and he desired in any way possible for these people to be rightly guided so that they would not die in a state of disbelief. As such, Hazrat Usman would show leniency towards these people and looked upon their actions of manifest rebellion as a mere intention to commit rebellion and would put off their punishment. This incident also illustrates that the companions greatly detested these people. The reason being that firstly, the mischief makers stated themselves that only three people of Medina were with them and no more. If other companions were also on their side, they would have named them as well. Secondly, the companions demonstrated through their actions as well that they abhorred the actions of these mischief makers and looked upon their deeds as being in violation of the Sharia to such extent that in their view, no punishment lesser than execution was acceptable. If the companions supported these people or the people of Medina held the same views as the mischief makers, they would not have needed any further justification or excuse and would have killed Hazrat Usman there and then and elected another person for the office of Khilafat in his stead. However, we observe that instead of these people being successful in killing Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, their very own lives became endangered by the unsheathed swords of the companions. It was only due to the favor and kindness of the very same gracious and compassionate person whom they sought to murder and against whom they had instigated an outrage that they were able to safely escape. One is astonished at the malice and unrighteousness of these mischief makers, for they did not derive the slightest benefit from this incident. Each and every one of their allegations was amply refuted and all their objections were proven to be false and unfounded. They witnessed the mercy and compassion of Hazrat Usman and the soul of every individual bore witness to the fact that the likes of such a person cannot be found on the face of the earth at this time. However, instead of repenting for their sins, being ashamed of their cruelties, feeling remorse for their trespasses and refraining from their mischief, these people began to burn even more in the fire of rage and fury. They considered their being rendered speechless as a disgrace and the forgiveness of Hazrat Usman as being the result of their good planning. As such, they returned while devising strategies to fulfill their remaining plan in the future. Another Grave Conspiracy by the Mischief Makers After returning, these people began to engage in written correspondence again. Ultimately, it was decided that according to their initial plan, in Shawal, everyone would set out in the form of a caravan under the pretense of performing Hajj, and then enter Medina, where they would suddenly upset the entire system and change the system of government as per their own liking. According to this proposal, in Shawal, meaning the 10th lunar month, in the 12th year of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman, or 36th Hijri, the rebels left their homes in the form of three caravans. One caravan was from Basra, one from Kufa, and one from Egypt. Keeping in mind the previous failure and considering that this was a final attempt, Abdullah bin Sabah also left for Medina along with the caravan from Egypt. The chief of the rebels stepping out himself was an indication of the fact that these people would now attempt to achieve their objective with the use of every possible tactic. As all the parties had outwardly expressed their intention of going for Hajj in their respective regions, 
other people who actually intended to perform Hajj also joined them. In this manner, their true intentions remained hidden from the ordinary Muslims. However, since the governors knew of their internal conspiracy, Abdullah bin Abi Sarah, the governor of Egypt, dispatched a special emissary to inform Hazrat Usman of the caravan and their intentions in good time, and the people of Medina became vigilant. At this instance, the question arises that when the people of Medina, and especially the companions, desire to execute these mischief-makers upon their arrival to Medina on three separate occasions, and whereas the rebels knew that Hazrat Usman was well aware of their plan of coming and creating disorder under the pretense of performing Hajj, why then did these people set out according to their initial plan, which Hazrat Usman was well aware of, instead of devising another plan? Does this mean that in actuality the people of Medina were with these mischief-makers and this is why they were not afraid? The answer to this question is that no doubt this audacity of theirs demonstrates that they had full confidence in their victory. However, the reason for this was not because the companions or the people of Medina were with them or expressed sympathy for them. Rather, as is evident from their own statement, only three people of Medina were with them. Furthermore, as events establish, the companions as well as the other residents of Medina were extremely averse to these people. Hence, the reason for their daring behavior cannot be due to the fact that the companions or the people of Medina expressed any kind of sympathy towards them. The actual reason for the boldness of these people was firstly the mercy of Hazrat Usman The mischief-makers thought that if they were successful, then the objective had been achieved. But if they failed, they would escape punishment by appealing to the mercy of Hazrat Usman Secondly, although the rebels had witnessed the reaction of the companions and the people of Medina on the previous occasion, and they knew that Hazrat Usman was aware of their arrival, these people thought that he would not mobilize an army to fight them due to his forbearance and the companions would not confront them. Considering the companions to be like themselves, the mischief-makers assumed that the companions only apparently expressed loyalty towards Hazrat Usman but actually desired his destruction. This assumption was based on the fact that the mischief-makers would give the impression that they were doing everything in order to safeguard the rights of the companions. Hence, they thought that the companions were moved by the influence of their deceit and felt sympathy for them at heart. Arrival of the Mischief-Makers in Medina As soon as word came that this army had reached close to Medina, the companions and the people of Medina who had gone out to manage their properties and lands in the surrounding area congregated in Medina. Their army was divided into two groups. One set out from Medina to fight the rebels, while the second force remained in the city for the protection of Hazrat Usman When all three caravans arrived close to Medina, the rebels of Basra settled at a place known as Zul-Khashab, and the rebels of Kufa at Awas, and the rebels of Egypt at Zulmarwa. They consulted one another as to what they should do next. Even though their number is estimated to have been from between 1,800 to 3,000 men, the other pilgrims who set out with them considering them to be a Hajj caravan were separate, the rebels thought that fighting the valiant men of Islam would not be easy if they were determined to fight. For this reason, they deemed it essential to immediately gather the view of the people of Medina upon entering the city. As such, two men named Ziyad bin al-Nadr and Abdullah bin al-Asam advised the rebels of Kufa and Basra that it was not wise to be hasty and if they rushed things, then the rebels of Egypt would also have to hurry and the plan would be ruined. They replied, We have learned that the people of Medina have prepared an army against us. 
If they have repaired to such a great extent despite not being fully aware of our circumstances, they will become even more vigilant upon learning of our complete state of affairs. Our victory shall become a mere dream. Therefore, it is more appropriate for us to first go there and ascertain the circumstances and speak to the people of Medina. If they consider it unacceptable to fight us and the reports that we have received about them prove false, we will return and inform you of all the circumstances and appropriate action will be taken. Everyone was in favor of this proposal. So the two of them went to Medina and first met with the Azwaj Mutahharat, meaning the wives of the Holy Prophet They asked them for permission to enter Medina and claimed that they had only come in order to request Hazrat Usman to change certain governors and that they held no other intentions. All the wives of the Holy Prophet refused to accept their words and said that the consequences of such action would not be favorable. Then they approached Hazrat Ali Hazrat Talha and Hazrat Zubair one by one and sought permission to enter Medina stating the same reason for their arrival and apparently exhibiting good intention. However, these three companions also refused to fall into their deceit and plainly responded that there was no good in this design of theirs. After ascertaining the state of affairs in Medina and having failed in their objective, when both these men returned and informed their comrades of the complete situation, a few leading men from all three regions of Kufa, Basra and Egypt arrived in Medina to make the final attempt. In accordance with the teachings of Abdullah bin Sabah, the rebels of Egypt believed Hazrat Ali anhu to be the wasi of the Holy Prophet and were not ready to perform bet on the hand of anyone other than him. Footnote Bet is an oath of allegiance to a religious leader. End footnote However, although the rebels of Kufa and Basra were with them as far as the uprising was concerned, they were not in agreement as far as belief was concerned. Thus, the people of Kufa considered to be in their best effort to offer bath to Zubair bin al-Awam and the people of Basra looked upon Talha. Due to this disagreement, the representatives of each caravan turned to those individuals whom they wished to appoint for the office of Khilafat after Hazrat Usman. The rebels of Egypt approached Hazrat Ali Razilahu Anhu. The rebels of Egypt went to Hazrat Ali Razilahu Anhu, who was commanding a section of the army outside Medina at the time, which stood ready to crush the rebels. They approached him and said that Hazrat Usman Razilahu Anhu was no longer suitable for Khilafat due to his administrative incompetence, and that they had come to dismiss him and hoped that Hazrat Ali Razilahu Anhu would accept this office after him. Upon hearing their proposal, he demonstrated such a degree of religious indignation as befitted a man of his stature. Thus he rebuked them and acted very harshly towards them, saying, All pious people know that the Holy Prophet ﷺ has foretold of the armies that would set up camp in Zul Marwa and Zul Khashab, where the rebels had set up camp, and then invoked curse upon them. Hence, may God ruin you. Be gone. They replied, Very well. We shall return. After this, they returned. The rebels of Kufa approached Hazrat Zubair The rebels of Kufa approached Hazrat Zubair and submitted, accept the office of Khilafat after it has been vacated. He also treated them in the same manner as Hazrat Ali He treated them very harshly and rebuked them, saying, All the believers know that the Holy Prophet has said that the armies to set up camp at Zul Marwa, Zul and Awas would be accursed. 
The rebels of Basra approached Hazrat Talha radiyallahu anhu. Similarly, the rebels of Basra approached Hazrat Talha, may Allah be pleased with him, and he also cast them off. He then informed them of a prophecy of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and of his invoking curse upon them. Appointment of Muhammad bin Abi Bakr as the governor of Egypt. When the rebels witnessed the state of affairs and were completely disappointed in this regard, they employed the strategy of expressing remorse for their action and only requested that a few governors be changed. When Hazrat Usman radiyallahu anhu learned of this, he accepted their request with extreme affection and kindness. According to the request of these people, Hazrat Usman radiyallahu anhu changed Abdullah bin Abi Sarah, the governor of Egypt, and appointed Muhammad bin Abi Bakr in his stead. Upon this, they returned seemingly content and the people of Medina were joyful that God had saved Islam from a grave conflict. Whatever they perceived, however, was not correct, because these rebels harbored other intentions and none of their activities were free from sedition and disorder. Reality Behind Conflicting Narrations One should remember that this is the juncture where extreme contradictions in narrations begins. The events which I have just mentioned have been described by various narrators in different ways to such an extent that the truth has been veiled completely and many people have been misled. They have either come to believe that the companions were involved in the entire affair or that in the least they held a heartfelt sympathy for the rebels. However, this is not correct. A great deal of caution is required with respect to the history of this era because no era has followed after the one under discussion which has been absent of such people who held sympathy for either one party or the other. This fact proves to be very detrimental to history because when intense hatred or undue love is involved, a narration can never be transmitted in its true form. Even if a narrator does not speak falsehood, his narration is sure to carry a tinge of his thoughts. Moreover, the particulars of the narrators of history are not as clear as those of hadith. Although historians have taken a great deal of care, they are still unable to establish the authenticity of a narration in the likeness of broad daylight, as can be done in the case of hadith. So, a great deal of caution is necessary. A golden principle for the verification of history. However, it is not impossible to ascertain the true facts either, because God the Exalted has left open such means by which the true course of events may be very well discerned. Such narrators also exist, who due to being completely neutral, state the facts as they are. A golden principle for the verification of history is that world events are like a chain. In order to verify the authenticity of an individual incident, it should be examined after being threaded into this chain to see whether the link can be threaded into its proper place or not. In order to distinguish between true and false events, this is a very useful aid. Therefore, Caution is required in order to learn about the true course of events pertaining to this era, and there is a need for scrutiny and cross-examination. Without keeping in mind the sequence of events, one cannot learn about the history of any era, especially the one under discussion. Furthermore, taking advantage of this contradiction in narrations, European writers have distorted the history of that era to such extent that the heart of a Muslim who possesses indignation burns when reading these incidents. Additionally, many people who are weak in faith become averse to Islam. It is a pity that even some Muslim historians have carelessly stumbled in this regard and have become the cause of misguiding others. Exoneration of Hazrat Usman anhu and the other companions In this short time, I cannot entirely discuss the errors which these people are entangled in. 
However, I shall briefly present a true account of the circumstances before you, which prove that Hazrat Usman anhu and the other companions were free from every form of mischief and sin. In fact, their behavior was a manifestation of very high morals, and they stood upon a lofty pedestal of virtue. The Rebels Enter Medina Again I have already mentioned that the rebels returned to their homes while apparently displaying agreement. The rebels of Kufa returned to Kufa, the rebels of Basra towards Basra, and the rebels of Egypt towards Egypt. Upon witnessing the state of peace and security, and feeling relieved upon the withdrawal of the rebels, the people of Medina returned to their tasks. However, many days had not passed, at a time when the people of Medina were either engaged in their work, or sitting in their homes and mosques, and had no idea whatsoever that the enemy would invade Medina, that the rebel army suddenly entered Medina and besieged the mosque as well as the home of Hazrat Usman. It was announced in all the streets of Medina that whoever cherished his life should quietly sit at home and not confront the rebels, or else. Their arrival was so sudden that the people of Medina were unable to fight back. Hazrat Imam Hassan states, I was sitting in the mosque when all of a sudden there was a clamor and cries of takbir began to resonate in the streets of Medina. Footnote, takbir means to proclaim the greatness of Allah and was the Muslim slogan for war. End footnote. All of us were shocked and we began to look for the cause of this noise. I stood up on my knees and began to look. In no time, these people suddenly raided the mosque and occupied it along with the surrounding streets. As a result of their sudden attack, the force of the companions and the people of Medina was scattered. They were unable to fight the rebels or engage in battle with them because the rebels had besieged the mosque and all the passages of the city. Now there were only two possibilities. Firstly, that aid arrived from the exterior. Secondly, that the people of Medina gathered somewhere and then fought them in an organized manner. As for the first case, the rebels were satisfied that Hazrat Usman would not do such a thing because he was very generous in his mercy and thinking well of others, and because he always gave the benefit of the doubt to them, despite their apparent mischief. As regards the second case, the rebels made an arrangement whereby they kept a stern watch over the streets of Medina and its entrances, in order that no group should be allowed to assemble anywhere. The rebels would scatter people wherever they happened to gather. However, they would not prohibit the odd conversation here and there, or the meeting of one or two people among themselves. The people of Medina advised the rebels. When the astonishment of the people of Medina had abated to some extent, a few of them came to the mosque, where the center of the rebels was, and began to advise them and express displeasure towards their action. However, instead of deriving benefit from their admonition, the rebels intimidated and threatened them, and bluntly said that if they did not remain silent, then the consequences would not be good, and they would be harshly dealt with. The Rebels Take Control of Medina Now, it was as if Medina no longer remained to be the headquarters of Khilafat. The rule of the Khalifa of the time had been abolished and a small party of rebels did as they pleased. Be it the companions of the Holy Prophet or the people of Medina, all struggled to defend their honor. Upon witnessing this conflict, some even stopped coming out of their homes. They would sit at home, aghast, night and day. The most prominent companions asked the rebels the reason for their return. 
On the previous occasion, since the rebels returned expressing their satisfaction and they had no remaining complaints, the companions were surprised as to the real cause of their return. Most did not have the courage to speak before the rebels. A few prominent companions, in whose names the rebels sought refuge and whom they professed to love, inquired of them, After all, what is the reason for your return? Hence, Hazrat Ali anhu, Hazrat Talha anhu, and Hazrat Zubair anhu, were the ones to inquire from these people as to the reason for their return. They all unanimously replied, We were returning to our homes with complete satisfaction and assurance when we noticed a person who was mounted on a camel given a sadka. At times he would come in front of us and at times he would fall back. When some of our men noticed him, they became suspicious and apprehended him. When he was questioned as to whether he had a letter, he declined. Furthermore, when it was inquired of him as to the purpose of his journey, he said that he was unaware. This made them even more suspicious. Finally, when he was searched, a letter was found to be in his possession which was written by Hazrat Usman anhu. In it, the governor of Egypt had been instructed, When the rebels return to Egypt, kill so-and-so, lash so-and-so, and shave their heads and beards, and consider the letter which they are carrying with respect to your dismissal as being invalid. When we saw this letter, we were extremely surprised and returned at once. Upon hearing the story, Hazrat Ali anhu instantly retorted, this tale has been fabricated in Medina. O people of Kufa and O people of Basra, how did you learn that the people of Egypt had seized such a letter despite being at a distance of many manzils from each other? Moreover, how then was it possible for you to return so soon? Neither could they respond to this objection, nor was there any answer. So the only reply they could give was, Say whatever you like, and think of us as you wish. We dislike the Khilafat of this person he should resign from his post. Ka'ab bin Ashraf, who held the position of a king among the Jews, was a bitter enemy of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and Islam. When his mischief crossed all bounds and the suffering of the Muslims knew no limits, Muhammad bin anhu, who was from among the prominent companions and the community of the Ansar, had done a great service to Islam by killing him under the instruction of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He made the same argument when he heard of this incident and raised the same objection, and plainly said, This is nothing more than a self-concocted lie. Hazrat Usman clears himself of the allegations leveled by the rebels. Even though the companions had logically dismissed their tale, the audacity of the rebels had now crossed all limits. Despite the humiliation they had faced, the rebels presented this matter before Hazrat Usman and demanded an answer from him. At the time, many prominent companions were also present in his company. Hazrat Usman responded, According to the Islamic Sharia, there are only two ways to decide a matter. Either the claimant must present two witnesses, or an oath must be taken by the defendant. It is obligatory upon you, therefore, to present two witnesses in support of your claim. If not, I swear by that God, beside whom there is none worthy of worship, that neither have I written this letter, nor has it been written with my consent, nor have I instructed someone to write it, nor am I aware as to who has written this letter. He further added, You are aware that at times letters can be forged and stamps may be replicated. When the companions heard this reply of Hazrat Usman, they testified to his truth and declared him innocent of the charges. However, this had no effect on the rebels, and why would it, 
for it was they who had themselves forged the letter. One can wake a person who is asleep, but how can such a person be awakened who pretends to be asleep while he is actually awake? The leaders of the rebels understood very well that this was their own deceit. How could they contemplate the validity and logic of these answers? Their followers had become their slaves. They would listen and obey and accept whatever they were told. Reality Behind the Rebel Scheme It was neither possible for the rebels to be affected, nor were they affected. However, as for those gifted with insight, this response of Hazrat Usman was so replete of the exemplary attributes of humanity and modesty that the audacity and shamelessness of these rebels becomes even more evident. The rebels forged a letter and accused Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, of deception and lies. Furthermore, Hazrat Ali and Muhammad bin Maslamah deduced the true state of affairs from the events and openly charged the rebels of deceit. Even Hazrat Usman himself, who was being accused and against whom this conspiracy was being hatched, cleared himself of the charges, but never said, you have forged this letter. In fact, he actually covered their mistake by merely stating, you are aware that a letter can resemble another, a stamp can be replicated, and even a camel can be stolen. Some people who believe Hazrat Usman to be absolved of this allegation, but are also inclined to think positively about the rebels, believe that perhaps Marwan wrote this letter and sent it on his own accord. However, in my view, this notion is absolutely false. The events clearly show that this letter was forged by the rebels themselves and was not written by Marwan or any other person. Furthermore, it is also wrong to object that if the rebels had forged this letter, how then did the servant of Hazrat Usman and a camel given in Sadqa come into their custody? How did they forge the letter of a scribe of Hazrat Usman and how was it stamped by the ring of Hazrat Usman? For many reasons exist, which suggest that it was the rebels who had forged this letter. It appears, however, from the events and seems most likely that this deception was the work of a few leaders alone. It would not be surprising if this was the doing of Abdullah bin Sabah alone and a few of his intimate accomplices, and that the other rebels, even if they were army chiefs, had no knowledge of this. Seven Arguments in Support of the Letter Conspiracy Evidence of the fact that this scheme was the work of the rebels themselves is as follows. It has already been proven with relation to the rebels that they did not refrain from lying in order to achieve their ends, just as they had lied in opposition to Walid bin Utbah and Sa'id bin al-As. Similarly, they publicized false complaints regarding various foreign administrations, which were investigated by the prominent companions and found to be false. Thus, when it has been established with relation to the rebels that they did not refrain from lying, there is no reason why they should not be held liable in this case either, and such people against whom no charge has ever been established should be held responsible. Just as Ali anhu and Muhammad bin Maslamah anhu objected, the prompt return of these rebels and their entrance into Medina together is a testimony to the fact that this was a conspiracy. The reason being that as history establishes, the rebels of Egypt asserted that they intercepted a messenger at a place known as Buwayb, who, according to their statement, was taking the letter of Hazrat Usman to the governor of Egypt. Buwayb is situated at a distance of at least six manzils from Medina, where the route to Egypt begins. 
If the people of Egypt had reached this far, both the people of Kufa and Basra must have covered about six manzils each in opposite directions as well. Therefore, news of what transpired before the rebels of Egypt could have reached the other two caravans no earlier than within twelve or thirteen days, and taking into account the time spent in leaving Medina and returning, the rebels could not have returned to Medina in less than twenty-four days, more or less. However, the rebels returned to Medina in a much shorter time period than this. Hence, it is clearly evident that even before leaving Medina, the rebels had planned amongst themselves that all the caravans would return on a particular date and suddenly take over Medina. Abdullah bin Sabah was with the Egyptian caravan and since he was very cunning, he knew that on the one hand, people would question them as to why they had returned unnecessarily, and on the other hand, he was concerned that the question of why the treaty had been broken after a decision had been made would weigh heavily upon the conscience of his own men. Hence, he produced a forged letter and misled the sensibilities of his own men, further igniting the fire of rage and fury in their hearts. After all, it is not difficult to steal a camel given in Sadka and bring a slave on board through bribery. The manner in which the incident of the interception of this letter is narrated is itself unnatural. For if Hazrat Usman or Marwan had sent such a letter, why then would the servant come in front of the rebels at times and hide at other times? This behavior can only be of such a person who wishes to get himself caught. According to the rebels, this servant had been ordered to reach Egypt before the arrival of their caravan. How then can the notion be entertained that he traveled side by side along with the caravan after reaching the location of Boeb, which is the gate to Egypt? There is a great difference between the journey of a man and a caravan. A caravan cannot travel at the same speed as one man. The reason being that a caravan has many requirements and all the mounts in a caravan are not equally as swift. So, how could it be possible for the messenger to still be with the caravan when it reached Boeb? At that time, he should have been close to his final destination. The state of the messenger, as described by them, can be attributed to a spy, but not a messenger. Similarly, when the messenger was apprehended, the dialogue that took place with him is completely unnatural. This is because he claims to be a messenger, but neither has he been given a letter nor a verbal message. Who can give such a reply except a person who is either insane or wishes to make himself seem suspicious? If the person really was a messenger, what need was there for him to say that he had been sent by Hazrat Usman or someone else? Likewise, it cannot be said that he was well committed to speaking the truth either, because it is said that he possessed a letter, but the messenger claimed that he was not in the possession of a letter. So, according to their narration, it is evident that the messenger did in fact speak a lie. The question that subsequently arises is why would he fabricate something which in turn would clearly lead to his capture? Why did he not speak a lie which would save him from being detained in such a situation? Hence, all these occurrences show that the entire affair about the letter and the person carrying it was a fabrication from beginning to end. Therefore, someone from among the rebels themselves, most probably Abdullah bin Sabah, forged a letter and handed it to a messenger so that he should travel closely in line with the caravan. However, it was not probable for a rider passing by on a heavily used route to be noticed and apprehended. However, since the person who forged this letter desired, insofar as possible, that this should happen through the agency of someone else, 
he instructed the emissary to move along with the caravan in such a manner that suspicion would arise in the hearts of people, and when they would question him in order to remove their doubt, the emissary should give such answers which would further increase their suspicion. The general public would search the emissary themselves, and upon finding the letter, would be certain that Hazrat Usman anhu had deceived them. The contents of the letter also indicate that it was a counterfeit and was not crafted by a well-versed Muslim, because in certain narrations, the subject matter of the letter reads that the beard of so-and-so should be shaved. However, the shaving of one's beard is prohibited in Islam, and under the Islamic rule, only such punishments could be meted out, which were in accordance with Islam. It was absolutely unacceptable for a person to be made to eat swine, drink alcohol, or to shave his beard as a form of punishment, because all these things were forbidden in Islam. The only punishments evident in Islam are those of execution, corporal punishment, fine, or expulsion from the land, whether it be in the form of exile or imprisonment. No other punishment is proven to have been administered in Islam except for the ones just mentioned. Neither did the Islamic scholars ever impose such a punishment, nor Hazrat Usman anhu himself, nor his governors. As such, for such a punishment to be written in this letter is sufficient proof of the fact that the letter was forged by someone who was unacquainted with the essence of Islam. The events preceding this letter also refute the possibility of it being from Hazrat Usman anhu or his secretary, because all narrations unanimously agree that Hazrat Usman anhu exhibited a great deal of leniency in punishing the rebels. If he had wished, Hazrat Usman anhu could have executed them all at the first instance of their arrival. Then, if Hazrat Usman anhu had left them on that occasion, the ringleaders could have most surely been arrested on their arrival a second time, because then they had openly committed an act of rebellion, and the companions were ready to fight them. However, to believe that he showed the rebels leniency at this stage, but wrote a letter to the governor of Egypt that he should punish them, is a remarkably irrational notion. Similarly, it cannot be asserted that Marwan wrote this letter in view of the leniency of Hazrat Usman anhu, because Marwan knew well that Hazrat Usman anhu was very strict in guarding the penal code. The conscience of Marwan could not have allowed him to think even for a minute that he would remain safe from punishment after writing such a letter. Then, if he were to write such a letter, why would he only write one to the governor of Egypt? Why did he not write similar letters to the governors of Basra and Kufa as well? In this way, all the enemies would have been dealt with once and for all. The fact that a letter was only written to the governor of Egypt is evidence of the fact that the caravans of Kufa and Basra did not have in their midst a man as cunning as Abdullah bin Sabah. One may assert that perhaps similar instructions were issued to the governors of both these regions as well, but the people who were carrying them could not be apprehended. The answer is that if this were the case, then the matter could not have remained hidden. If Abdullah bin Amr is accused of remaining silent due to being a relative of Hazrat Usman anhu, then Hazrat Abu Musa al-Ashri anhu, who is from among the prominent companions, whose impeccable faith has been testified to in the Holy Qur'an, and who was the governor of Kufa at the time, would never have remained silent, and would have surely disclosed the matter. Hence, the truth is that this letter was forged and had been crafted by someone from within the Egyptian caravan. Aside from the Egyptian caravan, since there was neither such a person present in the other caravans as was capable of carrying out such a scheme, nor was it possible to steal so many camels from Betul Mal in such a short time, nor could so many slaves be bribed. For this reason, letters addressed to the governors of other regions were not forged.
The servant about whom it is suggested that he carried this letter could have shed the most light on this matter. However, it is surprising that when Hazrat Usman anhu demanded for witnesses, this servant was neither presented, nor is there any mention of him in the events that followed. This indicates that it was not in their best interest to present him. Perhaps they feared that he would disclose the true state of affairs before the companions. Therefore, keeping him hidden is a testimony to the fact that it was the rebel party themselves who was responsible for forging this letter. A very compelling proof of the fact that these people had forged this letter themselves is that this was not the first letter which they had crafted. In fact, they had forged many other letters in addition to this in order to ignite the flames of the very same disorder. Hence, it was neither difficult for them to craft this letter, nor can it be attributed to anyone else in the presence of this reality. The counterfeit letters which these people had been producing previously were written falsely on behalf of Hazrat Ali anhu in order to defame him, and the contents of these letters was along the lines of incite rage against Hazrat Usman anhu. The vehemence of the general public was instigated through these letters, and upon seeing the attestation of Hazrat Ali anhu on these letters, they would fall for the words of Abdullah bin Sabah. However, it appears that they were ordered to keep the content of the letters very secret lest Hazrat Ali anhu found out about them and rejected having any connection with them. Furthermore, the masterminds behind this disorder presented a valid reason for their emphasis upon secrecy. They claimed that if these letters were exposed, then Hazrat Ali anhu would be confronted with difficulty. For this reason, people would not disclose the subject matter of these letters for the sake of Hazrat Ali anhu, and since the matter was kept secret, the deception of the masterminds would not be disclosed either. However, falsehood never remains hidden for long, especially when hundreds are made aware of it. The letter which was supposedly written on behalf of Hazrat Usman was seized and the ordinary masses of Kufa turned back extremely enraged. A group of them approached Hazrat Ali and asked for his assistance. Hazrat Ali had become aware of the falsity of this account as soon as he heard about it, and due to his God-given insight, the deception of the rebels of Egypt had become evident to him. He plainly refused, saying, I cannot join you in such a thing. At the time, in the heat of their emotion, some were unable to exercise caution, and spontaneously said, Then why have you been sending us letters? This was very surprising for Hazrat Ali anhu. He plainly rejected this, expressed his ignorance, and said, I swear by God the Exalted, I have never written any such letter to you people. These people were also extremely shocked, because in actuality, they had also been deceived themselves. They began to look at one another in amazement and inquired, Is this the person for whom you express rage and fight? In other words, this was to say that God forbid, Hazrat Ali anhu was such a coward that after having done everything, he was now wiping his hands clean. It appears from this incident that there were certain people from among the rebels who were skilled in crafting counterfeit letters, and that such people were present among the people of Egypt. The reason being that these letters could only be written on behalf of Hazrat Ali anhu to the Egyptians, who professed their love for Hazrat Ali anhu. Hence, the fact that the letter attributed to Hazrat Usman anhu was seized by the Egyptian caravan is overwhelming evidence that the person who wrote it was not a person from Medina, rather, he belonged to the caravan from Egypt. Since the letter incident is the most significant occurrence in the eyes of those who raise an allegation against Hazrat Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, I have expounded my research on this incident in detail. 
Although this incident can be described even more extensively, I believe that what I have mentioned thus far is sufficient to prove that this letter was a forged counterfeit, and that the people who crafted this letter were Abdullah bin Sabah and his accomplices, not Marwan or anyone else. As for Hazrat Usman, his person is far above such an allegation. Cruelties of the Rebels Upon the People of Medina I now return to the series of events once again. On the basis of this forged letter, and due to their pride of having taken control of Medina, the rebels began to openly perpetrate cruelties. On one hand, Hazrat Usman was being pressed to step down from Khilafat, and on the other hand, the people of Medina were being harassed so that they would refrain from attempting to help him. The people of Medina were completely helpless, as 2,000 to 3,000 armed soldiers were blockading the streets, junctions, and gates of the city. As it was, to fight such an army was not easy, but it was a far-fetched idea to even consider confronting the rebel army in conditions when they would not even allow a few people to gather, and it was impossible to collect in groups larger than two or four. Even if a few daring men opted to fight the rebels, this would have resulted in nothing but massacre. The mosque was a place where people could gather. However, the rebels had very cunningly taken measures to prevent this as well. They would spread out in the mosque before prayer and keep the people of Medina at a distance from one another so that they could not do anything. Hazrat Usman admonishes the rebels. Despite this commotion and conflict, Hazrat Usman would regularly come to the mosque to lead the prayers. The rebels would not hinder him in this regard and stop him from leading the prayers until the first Friday approached after their occupation of Medina. After leading the Friday prayer, Hazrat Usman admonished them and said, O enemies of Islam, fear God the Exalted. All the people of Medina know that the Holy Prophet has cursed you. So repent and erase your sins through deeds of virtue, because Allah the Exalted does not erase sins with anything other than good deeds. In response, Muhammad bin Maslama Ansari stood up and said, I testify to this fact. The rebels realized that although their associates thought ill of Hazrat Usman, if the companions began to testify in his support and their party learned that the Holy Prophet had explicitly made a prophecy about them, then the public may leave them. For this reason, they began to stop this practice. The robber Hakim bin Jabala, who I have mentioned earlier, took hold of Muhammad bin Maslama an intimate companion of the Holy Prophet who had stood up in support of Khilafat, not to create any kind of disorder, and forcibly sat him down. Then, Zaid bin Sabit, who had been endowed the magnificent duty of gathering the Holy Qur'an, stood up in order to testify, but he too was made to sit down by another rebel. The rebels break the staff of the Holy Prophet After this, a member of this party, which professed love for Islam, snatched from Hazrat Usman the staff with which the Holy Prophet used to take support while delivering the sermon, and after him Hazrat Abu Bakr and Hazrat Umar had done the same. He did not stop at this. In fact, he placed this memorabilia of the Holy Prophet which was a source of thousands of blessings for the Muslim nation, on his knees and broke it. They may have held some enmity towards Hazrat Usman They may have harbored hatred for Khilafat. But as for the Holy Prophet they professed love for him. 
How then did they have the courage to break this memorabilia of the Holy Prophet ﷺ with such contempt? Today, Europe has reached the furthest extremity of atheism, but even they still possess a sense that the memorable items left by their elders are to be valued. However, these people, despite claiming to be the followers of Islam, broke the blessed staff of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and tossed it away. This demonstrates that their passion to serve Islam was nothing but mere show, for the leaders of this party were as distant from Islam as the biggest enemies of Islam today. The rebels pelt stones at Masjid Nabi and injure Hazrat Usman. Even after breaking the staff of the Holy Prophet, the hearts of these rebels were not satisfied. They began to shower stones upon that mosque the foundation of which had been laid by Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and which had been erected by extremely holy hands. They continued to pelt the companions and the people of Medina, and drove them out of Masjid Nabi. They struck Hazrat Usman with so many stones that he fell off the pulpit in a state of unconsciousness, and a few men carried him home. This was the example of the love that these rebels held for Islam, and for the bearers of the Islamic Sharia. These were the high morals which they desired to establish in the Muslim world by removing Hazrat Usman from Khilafat. After this incident, who can say that the party which stood up in opposition to Hazrat Usman had any connection with the companions, or that, in reality, they had been compelled to cause a revolt due to certain measures taken by Hazrat Usman or that their indignation for Islam was the cause of their rage and fury? Their crimes are sufficient to prove that neither did they have any connection with Islam, nor did they hold any love for religion, nor any affection for the companions. They were bent upon ruining the peace and security of the country in order to fulfill their hidden motives and were trying to penetrate the fortress of Islam. Willingness of the Companions to Fight the Rebels Following this terrible event, the companions and people of Medina understood that the hearts of the rebels were filled with even greater animosity than what was being displayed. Even though there was not much they could do, some companions who preferred death over such a state became intent upon fighting the rebels, come what may. Perhaps, four or five men fighting in opposition to an army of 2,000 or 3,000 men may appear to be madness in the eyes of a worldly person. But as for those who had sacrificed all their possessions for the sake of Islam, it was not burdensome for them whatsoever to fight in its defense. The following companions were also among those who were prepared to fight. Saad bin Malik radiallahu anhu, Hazrat Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, Zaid bin Samit radiallahu anhu, and Hazrat Imam Hassan radiallahu anhu. When the news reached Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu, he immediately sent them an order instructing them not to fight the rebels under any circumstance and to return to their homes. The love which Hazrat Usman possessed for the companions of the Holy Prophet and the Ahle Bayt undoubtedly prevented a war which was to break out between a few devoted companions and a rebel army of 2,000 to 3,000 men. Footnote Ahle Bayt literally means people of the house and refers to the household members of the Holy Prophet. Footnote. However, from this event, we are able to effectively ascertain the level of passion that was building up among the companions due to the mischief of these rebels. It is only possible for a few men to become willing to stand up against a fierce army if they believe that subservience to it is worse than death. 
The involvement of Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu and Imam Hasan radiyallahu anhu in this group is especially worthy of attention. Hazrat Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu was neither a soldier nor had he performed any military service prior to this in particular. Similarly, even though Hazrat Imam Hasan radiyallahu anhu was the son of a valiant father and was also brave and courageous himself, he preferred peace and concord. And according to a prophecy of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he was a prince of peace. The fact that these two men stood up sword in hand demonstrates that the companions and the other people of Medina were immensely displeased by the sedition of these rebels. Three major supporters of the rebels in Medina. There were only three residents of Medina who supported the rebels. One was Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, who was the son of Hazrat Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu. Historians are of the view that since people showed him respect due to his father, he began to think that he held a position of rank as well. Except for this, neither did he hold any worldly precedence nor did he benefit from the company of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and nor did he gain special religious education afterwards. He was born in the days of Hajjatul Wada and was still a suckling baby at the time when the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away. Footnote Hajjatul Wada means the last Hajj performed by the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam prior to his demise and literally means the farewell Hajj. End footnote. He was only 4 when Hazrat Abu Bakr radhiyallahu anhu passed away and was unable to benefit from the upbringing of this exemplary man either. The second person was Muhammad bin Abi Huzaifa. He was not from among the companions either. His father had been martyred in the battle of Yamama and Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu had taken his upbringing upon himself. He had nurtured him from childhood. When Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu became khalifa, he asked him for a post, but Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu refused. He then asked for permission to go out and take up some form of work. Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu granted him permission, so he went to Egypt. Upon reaching there, he joined the supporters of Abdullah bin Sabah and began inciting people against Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu. When the rebels of Egypt attacked Medina, he came along with them. However, after having come some distance, he returned and was not present in Medina at the time of this conflict. The third person was Ammar bin Yasir, who was one of the companions. The reason he fell to deception was because he was not very informed in the field of politics. When Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu sent him to Egypt so that he could return with a report on the administration of its governor, Abdullah bin Sabah welcomed him and turned him against the governor of Egypt. Moreover, since the governor had bitterly opposed the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in his days of disbelief and had accepted Islam after the victory of Makkah, Ammar bin Yasir was quickly ensnared by him. After creating suspicion against the governor, Abdullah bin Sabah slowly made him suspicious of Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu as well. However, Ammar bin Yasir did not practically participate in the rebellion. Although he was present in Medina when it was attacked, apart from sitting quietly at home and not taking part in opposing the rebels, practically he did not take any part in the rebellion. He was completely innocent of the crimes committed by the rebels. Hazrat Usman is asked to step down from Khilafat. Besides these three, no one in Medina, be it a companion or anyone else, held sympathy for the rebels. Everyone would send curses upon the rebels and reproach them, but they did not care because all the power was in their hands at the time. For up to 20 days, the rebels tried to convince Hazrat Usman radhiyallahu anhu to somehow step down from Khilafat. 
through dialogue alone. However, Hazrat Usman plainly refused and said, Neither can I remove the garment which God the Exalted has clothed me with, nor can I leave the people of Muhammad unsheltered so that anyone who wishes may oppress another. Hazrat Usman continued to admonish the rebels to refrain from creating conflict and went on to say, Today, these people create disorder and detest my very existence. But when I shall be no more, they shall wish, if only each and every day of the life of Usman was transformed into one year each, and with that he had not departed from us so soon. For after me, there shall be severe bloodshed, rights shall be violated, and governance shall take a completely different turn. As such, in the Banu Umayyah period, Khilafat was replaced by secular rule, and these rebels were given such harsh punishments that they forgot all their mischief. The House of Hazrat Usman besieged. After twenty days had elapsed, the rebels thought that a quick decision was required, lest the armies from the surrounding provinces arrive, and they were made to suffer the consequences of their actions. For this reason, they stopped Hazrat Usman from leaving his house, and also forbade the transfer of food and drink into his house. They thought that perhaps in this manner, Hazrat Usman would be compelled to accept their demands. The administration of Medina was now in their hands. The three armies collectively accepted Rafiki, the commander of the Egyptian armies, as their commander-in-chief. So, it was as if Rafiki was the ruler of Medina at the time. Ashtar commanded the army of Kufa, and Hakim bin Jabala, the same robber who had been imprisoned in Basra on the order of Hazrat Usman for robbing the wealth of non-Muslim subjects, commanded the army of Basra, under the leadership of Rafiki. Once again, this proves that the rebels of Egypt were the root cause of this conflict, where Abdullah bin Sabah was at work. Rafiki would lead the prayers in Masjid al-Nabi, while the companions of the Holy Prophet would either remain locked up in their homes or would be compelled to offer prayers behind him. The rebels did not cause people much hindrance until they decided to lay siege upon the house of Hazrat Usman. However, as soon as they laid siege upon his house, they began to oppress other people as well. Instead of being Darul Aman, the house of peace, Medina had now become Darul Harb, the house of war. The respect and honor of the people of Medina was in danger. No one would step out of his house unarmed, and the rebels would kill anyone who confronted them. Hazrat Ali admonishes the besiegers. When the rebels had surrounded Hazrat Usman, and even went so far as to stop water from entering his house, he sent a neighbor's son to Hazrat Ali, Hazrat Talha, Hazrat Zubair, and the Ummuhat al Mu'minin, meaning the wives of the Holy Prophet, for assistance, saying, The rebels have even cut our water supply. If you are able to do something, then please arrange for water to be conveyed to us. From among the men, Hazrat Ali was the first to arrive. He admonished the rebels, saying, What sort of behavior have you adopted? Your actions neither resemble those of the believers nor the disbelievers. Do not prevent food and drink from entering the house of Hazrat Usman. Even the Romans and Persians provide their prisoners with food and water. According to the Islamic practice, your conduct is not acceptable in the least. Besides, what harm has Hazrat Usman done to you that you deem it permissible to imprison him and kill him? 
This admonition of Hazrat Ali radiallahu anhu had no influence on them whatsoever. They plainly said, whatever the case may be, we shall not allow food or water to reach him. This was the reply the rebels gave to the person who they deemed to be the wasi of the Holy Prophet and his true successor. After this reply, does the need for any other testimony remain in order to prove that this party who declared Hazrat Ali to be the wasi had not left their homes in support of the truth or out of their love for the Ahlabayt, rather only to fulfill their base desires? Treatment of the Rebels Towards Hazrat Umm Habiba From among the Ummuhat al-Mu'mineen, meaning the mothers of the believers, Hazrat Umm Habiba was the first to come to the aid of Hazrat Usman. Mounted on a mule, she brought a water skin along with her. However, her real objective was to safeguard all the wills of the orphans and widows that belonged to Banu Umayyah, which were in the possession of Hazrat Usman. When she saw that the rebels had stopped the water supply of Hazrat Usman anhu, she became fearful that they might destroy these wills as well, and thus desired to somehow safeguard these documents. After all, there were other means by which she could have delivered the water. When Hazrat Umm Habiba reached the door of Hazrat Usman anhu, just as the rebels were about to stop her, the people exclaimed, This is Umm al-Mu'minin, Umm Habiba anha. However, the rebels still persisted and started beating her mule. Umm al-Mu'mineen, Umm Habiba explained, I fear lest the wills of the orphans and widows of Banu Umayyah should be destroyed. For this reason, I wish to go inside in order to arrange for their safekeeping. However, these wretched people replied to the blessed wife of the Holy Prophet You are lying. The rebels then attacked her mule and cut the straps of its pack saddle. The saddle fell to one side. Hazrat Umm Habiba was on the verge of falling off and being martyred under the feet of the rebels, but a few people of Medina who were close by dashed to her aid and escorted her home. An Example of the Religious Indignation of Hazrat Umm Habiba This was the treatment which they meted out to the blessed wife of the Holy Prophet Hazrat Umm Habiba possessed such profound loyalty and love for the Holy Prophet that after a separation of about 15 to 16 years, when her father, who was a chief of Arabia and held the position of a king in Mecca, came to Medina on a special political mission and came to meet her, she pulled away the bedding of the Holy Prophet from beneath him. This was because she could not bear to see the pure cloth of the Messenger of Allah touch the impure body of an idolater. It is surprising that in the absence of Muhammad the Messenger of Allah, Hazrat Umm Habiba safeguarded the sanctity of even his cloth. Whereas these rebels did not even show veneration to the revered wife of Muhammad the Messenger of Allah in his absence. These foolish people said that the wife of the Holy Prophet was a liar, even though she was correct in her statement. Hazrat Usman was the guardian of the orphans of Banu Umayyah. On seeing their growing enmity, her concern that the wealth of the orphans and widows may go to waste was correct. The true liars were those who took up the task of destroying the faith while claiming to love Muhammad وسلم, the Messenger of Allah, not Umm Habiba anha, Ummul Mu'mineen. Hazrat Aisha anha prepares for Hajj When news of the treatment meted out to Hazrat Umm Habiba anha spread throughout Medina, 
the companions and residents of Medina were left shocked. They understood that now it was useless to hope of any good to come from the rebels. It was at this very time that Hazrat Aisha anha decided to go for Hajj and she began to make preparations for the journey. When people learned that she was about to leave Medina, some of them requested that if she remained behind, perhaps this would be conducive to bringing an end to the conflict and the rebels would take heed. However, she refused, saying, Do you want me to receive the same treatment as Umm Habiba? By God, I cannot put my honor at risk as she was the honor of the Holy Prophet If I am targeted in any way, what will be the means of my protection? Only God knows the extent to which the rebels will grow in their mischief and what will be their outcome. Just as Hazrat Aisha Siddiqa was leaving, she devised a strategy. Had it succeeded, this conflict may have been suppressed to some extent. She sent a message to her brother, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, that he should also accompany her to perform Hajj, but he refused. Upon this, Hazrat Aisha said, What am I to do? I am helpless. If I had the strength, I would never allow these rebels to succeed in their designs. Hazrat Usman sends a circular to the provincial governors. Hazrat Aisha had gone for Hajj, and some companions who were able to leave Medina also left. The remaining people, except for a few prominent companions, remained in their homes. Ultimately, even Hazrat Usman felt that the rebels would not settle through leniency, and he dispatched a letter to all the provincial governors, the summary of which is as follows. After Hazrat Abu Bakr and Hazrat Umar, without any desire or request of my own, I was included among those who were entrusted the duty of holding counsel regarding Khilafat. Then, I was elected to the office of Khilafat without any desire or request of my own. Without fail, I continued the works which the previous Khulafa undertook, and I did not introduce any innovations in the faith of my own accord. However, the seed of evil was planted into the hearts of certain people, mischief arose, and they began to plot against me. They expressed one thing before the people, while concealing another thing in their hearts. These people began to level such accusations against me, as were leveled against the Khulafa before me as well. However, I remained silent despite knowing of this. Taking advantage of my mercy, these people grew even more in their mischief. Ultimately, they attacked Medina in the likeness of disbelievers. So, if there's anything you can do, then please arrange for some help. Similarly, a few days later, Hazrat Usman wrote a letter to the people who had come to perform Hajj. The gist of this letter is set out below. A Letter to the Pilgrims from Hazrat Usman I draw your attention towards God the Exalted and remind you of His favors. At this time, certain people are creating mischief and are engaged in attempts to cause divide in Islam. However, these people have not even taken into consideration that God appoints the Khalifa, just as He says, Meaning, Allah has promised to those among you who believe and do good works that He will surely make them successors in the earth. Surah Nur, chapter 24, verse 56. Moreover, they did not value the importance of unity, even though God the Exalted has commanded, meaning, and hold fast altogether by the rope of Allah, 
Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 104. Furthermore, they accepted the words of those who accused me and did not pay heed to this command of the Holy Qur'an. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, in ja'akum fasikun bi naba'in fatabayyanu. Meaning, O ye who believe, if an unrighteous person brings you any news, ascertain the correctness of the report fully. Surah Al-Hujrat, chapter 49, verse 7. They did not honor their bath to me, even though Allah the Exalted says with relation to the Holy Prophet ﷺ, Meaning, verily those who swear allegiance to thee, indeed swear allegiance to Allah. Surah Al-Fat, chapter 48, verse 11. And I am a successor of the Noble Messenger ﷺ. No nation can progress without a leader, and if there is no Imam, then the community is destined to be ruined and destroyed. These people desire to destroy and ruin the Muslim Ummah. This is their only objective, because I accepted their wish and promised to change various governors, but despite this, they did not cease making mischief. Now, they demand one out of three things. Firstly, they demand that revenge should be sought for me for all those people who have received punishment in my reign. If I do not agree, then I should step down from Khilafat and they will appoint someone else in my place. If I do not agree to this either, then they threaten that they will send a message to all their supporters to no longer be obedient to me. The answer with respect to the first demand is that the Khulafa before me also committed judgmental errors, but they were never punished. Furthermore, what other motive besides killing me can there be in imposing so many punishments upon me? As for my deposition from Khilafat, my reply is that if these people tear my flesh into bits with pincers, I can accept this, but I cannot step down from Khilafat. Now remains a third point. If I do not agree to the above, they will send their men in all directions, telling people not to obey me. For this, I am not held responsible by God if they wish to act in violation of the Sharia. Even before, when they pledged allegiance to me, I did not compel them. Neither I, nor God the Exalted, is pleased with the action of anyone who wishes to break his covenant. Of course, such a person may do as he wishes on his own accord. Since the days of Hajj were fast approaching, and people were converging upon Makkah Mukarramah from all corners, Hazrat Usman appointed Hazrat Abdullah bin Abbas and dispatched him as the Amir for Hajj, lest the rebels create a disorder there as well. This way, Hazrat Abdullah bin Abbas could also urge the Muslims gathering for Hajj to assist the people of Medina. Even Hazrat Abdullah bin Abbas submitted, I would prefer to do jihad against these people. However, Hazrat Usman compelled him to go for Hajj and discharge his duties as the Amir for Hajj in order to prevent the rebels from spreading their mischief there and also to urge the pilgrims gathering there to help the people of Medina. The above-mentioned letter of Hazrat Usman was sent along with him as well. When the rebels learned of these letters, they grew in their violence. They began to look for an excuse to fight so that they could martyr Hazrat Usman. All their efforts, however, were in vain, and Hazrat Usman would not give them an opportunity to make mischief. The rebels pelt stones at the house of Hazrat Usman. In the end, out of frustration, the scheme devised by the rebels was that they would stone the house of Hazrat Usman at nightfall when everyone would fall asleep. In this manner, they would provoke the members of the household 
so that they too would throw stones in retaliation, so the rebels could say that they, the household of Hazrat Usman initiated the attack and they were compelled to respond. However, Hazrat Usman had prohibited all the members of his household from retaliating. One day, upon finding an opportunity, he approached the wall and said, O people, in your view I am a sinner. But what wrong have the others committed? When you throw stones, there is also a risk of others being injured. The rebels plainly denied and said that they had not thrown any stones. Hazrat Usman said, If you do not throw them, then who does? The rebels replied, God the Exalted probably throws them. Meaning, we seek refuge with Allah from such a thing. To this, Hazrat Usman responded, You speak lies. If God the Exalted had thrown stones at us, then not one of his stones would have missed, but the stones thrown by you fall off target as well. After saying this, Hazrat Usman left them to their work. Worthy Efforts of the Companions in Suppressing the Disorder Although the companions were no longer given a chance to gather in the company of Hazrat Usman, even still, they were not negligent of their duty. They had divided their work into two parts as a wise measure at the time. Those men who were elderly and due to their morals possessed a great influence on the public spent their time admonishing the rebels. As for those people who possessed no such influence or were young, would remain engaged in efforts to protect Hazrat Usman. From among the former group, Hazrat Ali and Hazrat Saad bin Waqas, the conqueror of Persia, strove the hardest to suppress the conflict. Hazrat Ali had especially devoted his time to this cause, leaving aside all his other work. As such, a person by the name of Abdul Rahman, who was an eyewitness of these events, says, in the days of disorder, I saw that Hazrat Ali had abandoned all his work. Day and night, he would remain concerned about how he could calm the temper of the enemies of Hazrat Usman and bring an end to his sufferings. On one occasion, when there was a delay in conveying water to Hazrat Usman, he became very displeased with Hazrat Talha to whom this task was assigned. Hazrat Ali did not rest until water had reached the home of Hazrat Usman. In ones and twos, Whenever they could find an opportunity, the second group began to gather in the house of Hazrat Usman or in neighboring houses. This party had firmly resolved that they would give their lives but not let Hazrat Usman come in harm's way. Besides the children of Hazrat Ali, Hazrat Talha and Hazrat Zubair, even a party of the companions themselves was a part of this group. These men guarded the house of Hazrat Usman day and night and would not allow any enemy to reach Hazrat Usman. Although this small party could not stand up to such a large army, but since the rebels were after an excuse to kill Hazrat Usman, they would not put up much of a resistance either. The events of that time shed such light upon the level of devotion Hazrat Usman possessed for the welfare of Islam that one is left astonished. An army of 3,000 strong stood at his door, and no strategy to save himself was devised. He even stopped those who endeavored to save him, saying, Leave. Do not put your lives in danger. These people only hold enmity for me. They have no objection against you. His eye could foresee the time when Islam would be in grave danger at the hands of these rebels. Not only apparent unity, 
but even the spiritual administration would reach the verge of falling apart. Hazrat Usman knew that at that time, each and every companion would be required for the protection and establishment of Islam. For this reason, he did not want the companions to lose their lives in a futile attempt to save his life, and continued advising all of them not to withstand the rebels. He desired that insofar as possible, the community which had benefited from the company of the Messenger of Allah should be safeguarded in order to dispel disorders which were to arise in the future. Despite his instructions, however, the companions who would happen to find an opportunity to reach the house of Hazrat Usman did not fail in fulfilling their obligation. They gave precedence to the danger at hand over such dangers that were yet to come. If the lives of the companions were secure at the time, then it was only because the rebels felt no need to hurry and were on the lookout for an excuse to murder Hazrat Usman. Ultimately, however, the hour arrived when it became impossible to wait any longer because the heart-rendering message of Hazrat Usman which he had sent to the Muslims who were gathering for Hajj had now been read out before the crowd of pilgrims. The valley of Makkah echoed this voice from one end to another. The Muslim pilgrims had decided that after the Hajj, they would not remain deprived of gaining the spiritual reward of performing jihad as well. They would uproot the rebels of Egypt and their associates. Rebel spies had informed their people of this intention, and now signs of agitation began to arise in their camp. This was to such extent that murmurings within the rebel camp began to take place, suggesting that now there was no other option but to kill this man, if they did not kill him, there would be no uncertainty in their own massacre at the hands of the Muslims. This anxiety was further intensified by the news that the letters of Hazrat Usman had now reached Syria, Kufa, and Basra as well, and the people there, who were already waiting for the orders of Hazrat Usman had been further enraged upon the receipt of these letters. Not to mention that taking it upon themselves, the companions had drawn the attention of all the Muslims towards their obligations in mosques and gatherings, and they had issued the verdict of performing jihad against the rebels. The companions said, A person who does not perform jihad on this day is as if he has done nothing. If in Kufa, Uqba bin Amr, Abdullah bin Abi Awfa, Hanzala bin Rabi at-Tamimi, and other noble companions had roused the people into supporting the people of Medina, then Imran bin Hasin, Anas bin Malik, Hisham bin Amir, and other companions had done the same in Basra. If in Syria, Obada bin Samit, Abu Umama, and other companions had motivated the people to answer to the call of Hazrat Usman, then Kharija and others had done the same in Egypt. Armies from every province were joining forces and marching towards Medina. Footnote According to the narration of Taburi, Hazrat Abu Darda Ansari was also among those companions who urged people to support Hazrat Usman in Syria. However, it appears from other narrations that he had already passed away prior to the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman as established by Istayab and Isaba. This is correct, however. As mentioned earlier during his lifetime, he too endeavored to wipe out this conflict. The rebels attacked the house of Hazrat Usman. Hence, this news intensified the anxiety of the rebels. Finally, they attacked the house of Hazrat Usman and sought to forcefully enter. The companions confronted them, and a fierce battle ensued. Although the companions were few in number, 
their religious indignation was covering for this disadvantage. Since the area where this battle took place, meaning in front of the house of Hazrat Usman, was narrow, due to this reason as well, the rebels were unable to exploit their advantage in number. When Hazrat Usman anhu learned of this battle, he forbade the companions from fighting. However, at that time, they viewed abandoning Hazrat Usman anhu to be against honesty and contrary to the teaching of obedience. Hence, they refused to return, despite Hazrat Usman anhu appealing to them in the name of God. Hazrat Usman anhu orders the companions. In the end, Hazrat Usman took a shield in his hand, came out, and led the companions inside his house. He then had the doors closed and enjoined the companions and their helpers. God the Exalted has not given you the world so that you may incline towards it. In fact, He has granted you the world so that by this means you may gather provisions for the hereafter. So let not that which is to perish make you unmindful. Give precedence to that which shall remain over that which is to perish. Be mindful of you meeting with God the Exalted and do not allow your community to disperse. Do not forget the divine favor that you were on the brink of a pit of destruction and God the Exalted saved you out of His bounty and made you as brothers. Having said this, he dismissed them and said, May God the Exalted be your guardian and helper. All of you leave the house now and call for those companions who have been barred from reaching me, especially Hazrat Ali Razilahu Anho, Hazrat Talha Razilahu Anho, and Hazrat Zubair Razilahu Anho. These people stepped out, and the other companions were also called. At the time, such a mood was developing, and such a degree of sorrow was overshadowing the atmosphere, that even the rebels could not remain unaffected. And why would this not be the case? Everyone was observing, that a candle lit by Muhammad wasallam, the Messenger of Allah, upon completing its life in the world, was now about to disappear from the eyes of the people. Therefore, the rebels did not cause much hindrance and all the companions gathered. When everyone had come together, Hazrat Usman climbed the wall of his house and said, Come close to me. When they had all come close to him, Hazrat Usman said, O people, Sit down. At this, the companions sat down, and inspired by the awe of the gathering, so did the rebels. When they had all sat down, Hazrat Usman said, People of Medina, I entrust you to God the Exalted, and pray to Him, that after me, He may arrange for a better successor than me. After today, until God the Exalted issues a decree in my regard, I shall not step out of my house, and I shall not pass on authority to anyone by which he may rule over you in terms of religion or worldly rule. I leave it to God the Exalted to choose whoever he desires for his work. After this, he appealed in the name of Allah to the companions and the other people of Medina not to put their own lives in grave danger by protecting him and to go to their homes. This instruction of Hazrat Usman created a serious disagreement among the companions, a disagreement the likes of which cannot be found prior to this. The companions knew nothing but to obey every command. But today, in obeying this instruction, some perceived the stench of treachery as opposed to obedience. Some companions gave precedence to the aspect of obedience and unwillingly did away with their intention of fighting the rebels from then on. Perhaps they thought that their duty was to be obedient 
and it was not their task to reflect upon the results that would come about by obeying this command. However, some companions refused to obey this order, because although they knew that it was an obligation to obey the Khalifa, but if the Khalifa commands people to abandon him, this effectively means that they should sever their ties with Khilafat. Hence, this kind of obedience actually results in treachery. Furthermore, they also knew that Hazrat Usman was sending them home in order to protect their lives. How then could they leave such a loving person in danger and go to their homes? All the prominent companions were among the latter group. As such, despite this command, the sons of Hazrat Ali Razilahu Anhu, Hazrat Talha Razilahu Anhu, and Hazrat Zubair Razilahu Anhu, under the order of their respective fathers, constantly stood guard at the porch of Hazrat Usman Razilahu Anhu and did not put their swords into their sheaths. Anxiety of the Rebels Upon the Return of the Pilgrims The anxiety and ebullition of the rebels knew no bounds when the odd one or two people who were returning after having completed Hajj began to enter Medina. They were certain that now the time for their judgment had drawn very close. After performing Hajj, Mughira bin al-Akhnas was the first person who entered Medina in order to gain the spiritual reward of jihad. As soon as he arrived, the rebels received news that the army of Basra, which was coming to help the Muslims, had reached Sirar which was only at a journey of one day from Medina. Overwhelmed by the news, the rebels decided that it was now vital that they fulfill their objective at all costs. Those companions and their friends who had refused to relinquish their protection of Hazrat Usman despite his prohibition, and those who had plainly said, How will we face God the Exalted if we desert you despite having the strength in our arms to fight? were now standing guard from inside the house due to their small number. Hence, it was not difficult for the rebels to reach the door. The rebels collected piles of wood outside the door and set light to them, so that the door would burn down and they could find an entrance into the house. Upon observing this, the companions deemed it inappropriate to remain inside and they desired to step out, swords in hand. However, Hazrat Usman stopped them from doing so and said, What more can there be than setting the house on fire? Whatever was to happen has now happened. Do not put your lives in danger and return to your homes. These people only harbor enmity against myself, but soon they shall be remorseful for their doing. I absolve every person of his duty who is obliged to obey me and give up my right upon him. However, the companions as well as others did not accept this and stepped out swords in hand. As they were coming out, Hazrat Abu Huraira arrived as well and joined them, even though he was not the kind of person to engage in battle. Abu Huraira said, What battle can be superior to the battle of this day? Then he looked towards the rebels and said, وَيَا قَوْمِ مَا O my people, why is it that I call you towards salvation and you call me towards the fire? The Companions Fight the Rebels This battle was an exceptional one. A handful of companions who were able to gather at the time fought desperately against this grand army. On that day, even Hazrat Imam Hassan who was extremely peace-loving, in fact, he was a prince of peace, attacked the army and would recite Rajas. Footnote Rajas is a specific meter in Arabic poetry which contains a discourse in rhyme. 
This word also denotes the recitation of poetic verses in general. End footnote. The couplets recited by Hazrat Imam Hassan and Muhammad bin Talha on that day are especially worthy of mention because they provide a deep understanding of their heartfelt feelings at the time. Hazrat Imam Hassan anhu, would recite the following couplet and attack the rebels. La dinahum dini wa la ana minhum hatta asira ila tamari shamam. Their faith is not my faith, nor do I have any relation with them. I shall fight them until I reach the summit of Mount Shamam. Shamam is a mountain in Arabia which serves as a similitude for conquering heights and the achievement of one's goal. Hazrat Imam Hassan meant to say that he would continue to fight the rebels until he attained his objective and would not make peace with them because the disagreement between both parties was not a trivial one whereby the believers could develop a relationship with them without having conquered them. These were the thoughts that were billowing in the heart of this Prince of Peace. Let us now take the rajas of the son of Talha Razilahu Anhu, who says, Anabnu man hama alayhi bi uhud, uradda ahzaban ala zaghmi ma'ad. I am the son of he who protected the Holy Prophet on the day of Uhud and defeated the Arabs despite their full efforts. In other words, this day was also similar to the day of Uhud, just as his father had offered his hand to be pierced with arrows, but did not let any harm come to the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he would do the same. Hazrat Abdullah bin Zubair also participated in this battle and was badly injured. Marwan also sustained serious injuries and barely escaped the clutches of death. Mughira bin al was killed. When the person who had attacked Mughira saw that not only had he been wounded, but that he had been killed, he exclaimed, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon, meaning, Surely to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 157. The chief of the army reprimanded him, saying, You express regret on an occasion of happiness? He replied, Last night I saw in a dream that a person said, Give news of hell to the killer of Mughira. So upon learning that I am his killer, I was bound to be shocked by this. Besides the above-mentioned people, others were also injured and killed. The party protecting Hazrat Usman became even smaller. If, on the one hand, the rebels persisted in their obstinacy despite a heavenly warning and continued to fight against the beloved party of God the Exalted, then on the other hand, the devotees also did not slacken in setting an excellent example of faith. Despite the fact that most guards had been killed or injured, a small party continued to guard the door without fail. Since the rebels had apparently gained victory already, they sent someone to Hazrat Usman again as a final strategy to have him resign from Khilafat. They felt that if he resigned himself, then the Muslims would have no authority or opportunity to punish the rebels. When the messenger reached Hazrat Usman, he said, I have refrained from vices even in the days of Jahiliyyah and have not violated the injunctions of God after accepting Islam. Why and for what crime should I leave the office which God the Exalted has conferred upon me? I shall never remove the garment which God the Exalted has clothed me with. The messenger returned after hearing this reply and addressed his people in the following words. By God, we have fallen into grave trial. By God, we cannot escape the clutches of the Muslims without killing Usman because in this case, the government would topple 
and its administration would crumble and there would be no one to question them. But killing him is in no way permissible. Not only do the words of this person highlight the anxiety of the rebels, but they also establish that Hazrat Usman had still not allowed anything to arise which the rebels could have used as an excuse. In their hearts, the rebels knew that killing Hazrat Usman was not lawful under any circumstances. Abdullah bin Salam admonishes the rebels. Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam arrived when the rebels were plotting to assassinate Hazrat Usman. Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam was greatly revered within his tribe, even when he was a disbeliever, and the Jews believed him to be their chief and a peerless scholar. He stood at the door and began to admonish the rebels, and he forbade them from killing Hazrat Usman, saying, O people, do not draw the sword of God upon your heads. By God, if you draw the sword, you will never find an opportunity to put it back into its sheath. Conflict and discord among the Muslims shall never end. Pay heed. Today the government punishes criminals by the whip. Generally, lashing is the penalty for a criminal offense in the Islamic Penal Code. But if you kill this man, then the state will not be able to maintain order without the sword, meaning people will be killed for petty crimes. Keep in mind that the angels are the guardians of Medina at this time. If you kill him, the angels will desert Medina. Footnote In other words, rebels such as these will create such havoc and terror in the state that it will be impossible for the government to maintain order and protect the innocent unless harsher punishments are meted out to such criminals. End footnote The benefit that the rebels derived from this admonition was that they drove off Abdullah bin Salam, the companion of the Holy Prophet In addition, they taunted him with reference to his previous faith, saying, O son of a Jewess, what have you to do with these matters? It is a shame that the rebels remembered that Abdullah bin Salam was the son of a Jewish lady, but forgot that he had accepted Islam at the hand of the Holy Prophet Furthermore, the Holy Prophet was immensely pleased when he converted, and he too stood by the Holy Prophet in every hour of difficulty and suffering. Moreover, the rebels also forgot that Abdullah bin Sabah, their leader and instigator, the person who declared Hazrat Ali to be the wasi of the Holy Prophet and presented him in opposition to Hazrat Usman, was also the son of a Jewess. In fact, he was a Jew himself and was only outwardly expressing Islam. The rebels assassinate Hazrat Usman. Disappointed by the rebels, Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam left. Upon noticing that it was difficult to murder Hazrat Usman by entering through the door, because the few people who were present on guard there were bent upon killing or dying, so they decided to assassinate Hazrat Usman by jumping over the wall of a neighboring house. As such, with this intention, a few rebels jumped over the wall of a neighboring house and sneaked into the room of Hazrat Usman. When these people entered, Hazrat Usman was reciting the Holy Quran. After the siege had been laid, day and night, the only occupation of Hazrat Usman was to offer prayer or recite the Holy Quran and he would not pay attention to any other work. In those days, 
The only other task that he performed before the rebels penetrated the house was to appoint two men in order to guard the treasury, because on that night, the Holy Prophet ﷺ appeared to him in a vision and said, O Usman, break your fast with us this evening. After this vision, Hazrat Usman was convinced that he would be martyred that day. Hence, taking his responsibility into account, Hazrat Usman ordered two men to stand guard by the gate of the treasury so that no one would attempt to loot the treasury during the chaos and mischief. Events leading up to the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman When the rebels reached inside, they found Hazrat Usman reciting the Holy Quran. Muhammad bin Abi Bakr was among the attackers and due to the power he commanded over the rebels, he considered it his duty to be at the forefront of everything. He advanced and took hold of Hazrat Usman by his beard and gave it a violent tug. In response to this action of his, Hazrat Usman only said this much, O my brother's son, if your father, meaning Hazrat Abu Bakr had been here now, he would have never done such a thing. What has happened to you? Are you displeased with me for the sake of God? Are you angry at me for anything other than the fact that I have made you fulfill the rights of God? Upon this, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr turned back in shame. However, the rest of the rebels remained there, since definite news had been received that the army of Basra would reach Medina that night, and this was their last opportunity. The rebels had decided that they would not return without completing their mission. One of them advanced and struck the head of Hazrat Usman with an iron rod. Then he kicked the Qur'an, which was placed opposite Hazrat Usman. The Holy Qur'an went tumbling towards Hazrat Usman, and drops of blood fell upon it from his head. What to talk of dishonoring the Holy Qur'an, the virtue and honesty of these people became fully exposed by this event. The verse upon which the blood of Hazrat Usman fell was a magnificent prophecy that was fulfilled in its own time, with such grandeur that a person who possessed even the hardest of hearts closed his eyes out of fear after beholding a glimpse of its blood-stained words. The verse was, Allah will surely avenge thee against them, for he is all-hearing, all-knowing. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 138. After this, a person by the name of Saudan advanced and desired to attack him with a sword. When he made his first strike, Hazrat Usman shielded himself with his hand and his hand was wounded. Upon this he said, By God the Exalted, this was the first hand to write the Holy Quran. After this, Saudan made a second attack in an attempt to assassinate Hazrat Usman but his wife, Naila, moved forward and stepped in between. This evil person, however, did not even hesitate to strike a lady. He attacked her, and her fingers were severed. Consequently, she got out of the way. After this, he made another attack upon Hazrat Usman and severely wounded him. Then, in the thought that perhaps he had not died yet and may survive, when Hazrat Usman was writhing in agony and fell unconscious due to the pain of his wounds, this wretched person immediately took his neck and began to strangle him. This man did not release the neck of Hazrat Usman until his soul departed his physical body and flew to the heavenly world, eagerly accepting the invitation of the Holy Prophet 
Innalillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 157. At first, overwhelmed by the horror of this scene, the wife of Hazrat Usman was unable to speak. She finally called out for help, and the people sitting at the door rushed inside. However, any help was now useless. What was to happen had already taken place. When the freed slave of Hazrat Usman saw the blood-stained sword which had been used to martyr Hazrat Usman in the hands of Saudan, he was unable to restrain himself. He advanced and severed the head of Saudan with his sword. In turn, one of his associates killed him. Now the throne of the Islamic Empire was empty of a Khalifa. The people of Medina deemed further efforts to be futile, and all of them returned to their respective homes. After martyring Hazrat Usman, the rebels began to terrorize the members of his household. The wife of Hazrat Usman desired to move away, and when she left, a wretched person from among them remarked to his associates, Look at the size of her buttocks. Undoubtedly, for a respectable man, no matter what religion he belongs to, it is difficult to even fathom that the rebels would express such foul views at a time when they had just martyred the foremost pioneer companion of the Holy Prophet his son-in-law, the king of the Muslim empire, and then the khalifa of the time. However, their indecency was so immense that no evil deed was beyond them. These rebels were neither in pursuit of any good objective, nor did their party consist of righteous people. Some of them were admirers of the deceptive, anti-Islam, strange and peculiar teachings of Abdullah bin Sabah, the Jew. Others were fascinated by the concept of excessive socialism, rather Bolshevism. Some were criminals who had served sentences and were looking to spill out their animosity, while others were robbers and bandits who saw this conflict as a means of fulfilling their ends. In short, their indecency is not surprising. As a matter of fact, it would have been surprising if these people had not behaved in such a manner. While the rebels were pillaging and plundering, another freed slave could not restrain himself when he heard the screams and cries of the household of Hazrat Usman. The slave attacked and killed the person who had killed the first slave. At this they killed him as well. The rebels even took off the jewelry worn by the women and left the house laughing and mocking. The Rebels Loot Betul Mal Following this, the rebels made an open announcement to their people that they should head for Betul Mal and loot whatever they could lay their hands upon. The guards decided amongst themselves that the rebels should be left to do as they please, since there was nothing but two sacks of money in Betul Mal. The Khalifa at the time had been martyred, and there was no use in fighting the rebels. The guards threw the keys of Betul Mal and left. As such, the rebels went to Betul Mal opened it, and looted whatever was stored inside. In this manner, the rebels placed a stamp of attestation upon the fact that they were bandits and robbers and had no relation with Islam and the Muslims. It is not surprising that those people who used to raise the objection against Hazrat Usman that he would give funds to those who were undeserving, the first thing they did after his martyrdom was to loot his house and then Baytul Mal. However, God the Exalted did not allow their desires to be fulfilled in this respect either, because there was nothing more than a small amount of money in Baytul Mal at the time, which was insufficient to satisfy their greed. Outrage of the Companions at the Martyrdom of Hazrat Usman 
When news of the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu reached the companions, they were devastated. When Hazrat Zubair radiallahu anhu heard this news, he said, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 157. Then he said, O God, have mercy on Usman and avenge him. When he was told that the rebels were now ashamed and felt remorse for what they had done, he retorted, This was a conspiracy. And then he recited the following verse, Wahila baynahum wa bayna ma yashtahoon. God the Exalted placed obstacles in the fulfillment of their desires. Surah Sabah, chapter 34, verse 55. In other words, since there was very little chance that now the wishes of the rebels would materialize and they could see that the entire Muslim world was in fury against them, they were now displaying remorse. When Hazrat Talha anhu received the news, he said the same, May God have mercy on Usman and avenge him and Islam. When he was told that they were now repentant, he said, May destruction befall them. And he recited this verse, فَلَا يَسَتِيَعُونَ تَوْسِيَةً وَلَا إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهِمْ they shall not even be able to make a will, and they shall not be able to return to their families. Surah Yasin, chapter 36, verse 51. In the same manner, when Hazrat Ali radiallahu anhu received this news, he said, May Allah the Exalted have mercy on Usman and appoint a successor after him who is better for us. When he was also told that they were now repentant, he recited the following verse. كَمَثَلِ الشَّيْطَانِ إِذْ قَالَ الْإِنسَانِ اِكْفُرْ فَلَمَّا كَفَرَ قَالَ إِنِّي بَرِيٌّ مِنْكَ إِنِّي أَخَافُ اللَّهَ رَبَّ الْعَالَمِينَ Their example is of that Satan who tells the people disbelieve. But when they disbelieve, he says, I am averse to you. I fear Allah. Surah Al-Hashr, chapter 59, verse 17. When the armies that were coming to aid Hazrat Usman anhu learned that he had been martyred, they turned back from distance of only a few miles from Medina. They did not wish to enter Medina because their doing was no longer any use to Hazrat Usman anhu. In fact, it was apprehended that conflict may have escalated. Moreover, the Muslims were generally never keen to fight without an imam. Now Medina was in the possession of the rebels and their behavior during those days was extremely shocking. They had already martyred Hazrat Usman anhu but now they also had an objection with his burial. For three days, he could not be buried. Finally, a group of companions showed courage and buried Hazrat Usman at night. The rebels placed hindrances in the path of these companions as well, but when some of them threatened to fight them fiercely, they gave in. The rebels took the corpses of the two servants of Hazrat Usman and placed them in the jungle and fed them to the dogs. Na'udhu billahi min dhalik. We seek refuge with Allah from such a thing. Summary and Outcome of the Events Described These are the actual events which transpired in the final days of the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman After learning of these events, no one can even imagine that Hazrat Usman or the companions had any involvement in these conflicts. The love, devotion, and forbearance with which Hazrat Usman anhu served in the last six years of his Khilafat is to his credit. The like of this cannot be found in any other community except for among the servants of God, the Holy. 
he selflessly occupied the seat of Khilafat and returned to his true beloved selflessly. In perilous times, when the blood of even the most patient of men boils with rage, Hazrat Usman anhu adopted such a manner that those who were thirsty for his blood could not even find the lamest excuse to kill him. Ultimately, the rebels had to put Hazrat Usman anhu to the sword, and in this manner, they confessed that they were the oppressors and Hazrat Usman anhu was innocent. Similarly, it is clearly evident from these events that the companions had no objection against the Khilafat of Hazrat Usman anhu. Until the very last breath, they were loyal, and even when it was impossible for them to help in any way, putting their own lives in danger, they continued to protect Hazrat Usman anhu. These events also established that neither did the appointment of governors by Hazrat Usman anhu have anything to do with these conflicts, nor was the tyranny of these governors a cause. The allegation against Hazrat Ali anhu, Hazrat Talha anhu, and Hazrat Zubair anhu of secretly conspiring is also absolutely false. All three of these companions strove to remove this conflict with such loyalty and sympathy that even biological brothers cannot match their efforts, let alone exceed them. The allegation which is leveled against the Ansar that they were displeased with Hazrat Usman anhu is false because we see that all the chiefs among the Ansar endeavor to ward off this conflict. The real cause of this disorder was that upon witnessing that Islam could not be destroyed by overt schemes, the enemies of Islam turned their attention towards hatching secret conspiracies. Using the name of prominent companions, they secretly began to create factions among the Muslims. The means that they had employed have now become manifest to the people. The rebels persuaded criminals who had served sentences to join them and bribe robbers. They weakened the administration of the state by spreading false concepts of equality. They weakened the faith of people under the guise of religion and prepared a community through thousands of schemes and tactics. Then, through lies, fabrication, and deception, these people created such circumstances that it became difficult for Hazrat Usman anhu and other companions to resist. We know not what the outcome would have been, but from the events we know this much. Even if it had been the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar anhu, this conflict still would have arisen. The allegations which were leveled against Hazrat Usman anhu would also have been leveled against Hazrat Umar anhu. For Hazrat Usman anhu did nothing which Hazrat Umar anhu and Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu had not done. Due to a shortage of time, since the events of the Khilafat of Hazrat Ali anhu were mentioned in only a few minutes and were very brief, hence I deleted this part during my second reading.